I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we parse through the pages of a celebrity memoir and say, do you know what? These could have been said better. And we say them ourselves. And do you know what? If you disagree and you think, no, the way the book was, was the best version, read the book. Support indie authors like (laughs) Brooke Shields. (laughs) But if you think, hey, I like the way you guys say it better, then come on board, baby. We're about to say a lot of stuff. Oh, boy, are we going to say some stuff. (laughs) Boy, will words come out of our mouths. Oh, boy, do we yammer. Claire. (laughs) Yes. We haven't recorded in a while. How would you title the chapter of your memoir since last time? hectic. It has been, it turns out, quite hectic to move in the middle of traveling a lot, especially when you've never moved before. There's just been a lot going on. Like, we're gone all week. We come back for the weekends. I move. We're gone all week. We come back for the weekends. Things just keep popping up. I feel like I've never had more things pop up than I have in the last week. But the worst thing of them all, and it's not like not feeling at home, and it's not the jet lag, and it's not my dad's health scare, (laughs) is that I haven't had internet. I haven't had internet for five days and we keep calling the people and they're like, we're working on it. And I'm like, are you? Because it feels like you could be working. Like, how hard could it be? Callers write in, does Bedstein not get internet? Or is this just like a fluky, fluky week? Because so far I've lived there and every day there has not been internet and they keep saying they're working on it. And I'm just like looking around at all of my neighbors trying to be like, have you ever been online? <laughs> is it just my place? Or is it like the neighborhood? Is it the block? Is this an abnormality? But let me tell you, not having internet, home is where the internet is. If you don't have Wi-Fi and you can't sit on your bed and watch Netflix, you'll never feel at ease. I have been like a little girl gone. I am a traveler lost at sea. I am sitting in my own goddamn home feeling like, well, I'll never know love again. I can't explain it, but to not have the warm embrace of like streaming or Googling, I keep (laughs) making lists of things I have to do. And I don't even know, I have to put down this huge deposit for my wedding. And I don't know how to explain to them. I'm like, listen. I can't because I have no internet. And I know that sounds suspicious to you as a business (laughs) that a girl (laughs) would be saying she can't have internet but can't afford this wedding. But um, oh boy, has it been the worst experience of my life? I will say there is something in the modern age where like home is the place where you can just sit perfectly still and look at your phone or your computer and no one can look at what you're looking at. And you can just scroll, sound on, no headphones. And that is what comfort is. I mean, even during the pandemic, when I was basically living with Mac in his studio apartment, I would bike home to my apartment every day (laughs) to say that I needed like alone time to work and just sit and watch six hours of Bravo TV. And it's like, could I have done that in front of him? Of course. But it's It's so different. It's so different. Like, I just want to watch TV alone. And I don't want anyone to see what I look like. I don't (laughs) want anyone to see how much I'm watching. I just, please. It's been horrible. Ashley. Yes, Claire. How have your few weeks been? What would you call your chapter of last time? Wait, we forgot to say thank you. We forgot to say how much we loved everyone. I have had so much fun on tour. I am so appreciative of these shows. I'm so excited to have met everyone that's come out. And somehow, for me too, the days home have been just train wreck after train wreck, and I am tired. We are so weak. It is unbelievable. Like, we were built different (laughs) in that we were built worse. We went on one business trip. You know, a lot of people in business travel every week. You know, some people travel every week, and that's just their lifestyle. And we're like, we left town twice, and I don't know that we'll ever recover physically. (laughs) I have aged like a president. I am so tired. I got back back like a shipwrecked person. (laughs) It's like I haven't seen land. Okay, we had three days of not traveling. 
And on one of those days, I was completely bowled over by food poisoning or something. I think I might have an allergy to mushrooms, perhaps, TBD, whatever it was, I was down and fucking out, like not even conscious. It was crazy. I forgot who I was talking to, but they were like, well, at least you got like a nice cozy day on one of your days off. And I was like, it was not a cozy day. It was a lost day. It was a pukey day. It was a day that is just gone to the winds, okay? (laughs) I have no idea who I was or what happened on that day. At one point, Claire came by to give me ginger ale and she was like, do you want me to take bug out? And I was like, I can take bug around the block. I'm fine. And when you left, I took bug out and I like cried. I was like, that was a huge mistake. Me and bug got halfway to the park, which is a six minute walk. And we had to go home so that I could throw up. And then we went back to the park and she was like, what the fuck? She must have thought you were an absolute goof head because she's like, I take a shit on the sidewalk and you have to go home to puke. (laughs) I want to give a shout out to Claire for bringing me ginger ale and a shout out to bug for being extremely snuggly. Aw, bug. And also, you guys, I forgot how much I loved you and touring because of the internet thing. I literally was like, well, if I don't have internet for a week and put a gun to my head, I don't want to keep living. I don't even care if the internet comes back later. It's too late. (laughs) The damage has been done and I'll never be the same again. But meeting you guys has truly changed my life. It is so amazing to get to chat with you. Please, if you're going to see us soon or ever again, like know that we love to say hi. We love to chat. I feel like so grateful that anybody comes to the shows and that anybody like waits to say hi and getting to put a face to a name, a face to the DM. A lot of times we'll have been DMing you a lot, but you have like a baby as an avatar. So I'm like, well, I didn't recognize you as an adult. And then when you say your name, we're just like, oh my God, we talk every day. I know you. (laughs) I am so happy to meet you guys. And it has just been amazing. It's been like, what is all for? It worked out and now I can die. (laughs) Please, someone get internet in bed today. I do want to keep going. I can't believe they don't have internet there. So speaking of a world before internet. The 80s. Have you ever heard of them? (laughs) This week, we are talking about Brooke Shields. There was a little girl, the real story of my mother and me. And I want to say real quick before we get into it, we are recording this episode before the documentary comes out on Hulu, but we will be covering the documentary on the Patreon this week. So I think it's very interesting that we're covering it before seeing the movie because I wonder how much her position has changed. This was written in 2014, like pretty raw after her mother passed. It goes up to basically the year after her mom died when she has what she feels is like her first real wave of grief after a year of denial. She kind of has a breakdown and in response to the breakdown, she writes this book. And oh boy, are we processing? Oh boy, was this book a process and a processing? And I wonder how much the movie will be processed. I think that this was an incredibly sad and honest and vulnerable book. But as you guys know, as is a big core tenant of CNBC, there is no truth. There's only what you know. You can be as honest as you can be and still be like wrong about your own life. And that's the beauty of a memoir, baby. This is the book that has left me saddest for our memoirist. Well, that's... I know. That's tough stuff. I know. Because I think a lot of the other ones, even though they've had like objectively harder, like if you're just measuring based on like the number of sandbags tied to an ankle, you're just like (laughs) there are people who've had harder lives that we've read about. But I think this book, and once again, I'm excited for the movie, and this is the last time I'll reference the movie. I love that you keep calling it the movie. (laughs) Like the movie adaptation. Like, no, the documentary. Is that not a movie? So Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, this book itself, like as a completed work has the least amount of hope. (laughs) (laughs) The conclusion is like, and now the hope's gone. And so at least I can't be heartbroken by the lack of potential anymore. And you're like, that's as good as it gets. No more hope. really (laughs) depressing. This book shows very little growth, very little hope, very little like getting to the conclusion that you want her to get to. And it makes you very sad. 
So it starts with an introduction, which I think is one of the best introductions we've read because it really sets you up for what she's hoping to do. And what she's not hoping to do. And so she talks about how the days after her mother died, she paid for the New York Times to run an obituary that she had written about her mother. When the New York Times saw that it was Brooke Shields' mom, they called her back and were like, hey, we'd love to put her on the front page and ask some more questions. And Brooke is like, I don't want to answer more questions. Just run what I wrote. Treat her like a normal person. And they're like, well, we can't do that. We're going to send you your money back and we're going to ask a couple questions. And they're like, we just want to know where her brother is from. And she's like, all right, if that's your one question, that's fine. So it gets moved. She gets her money back. She answers the one question. And then the next day, the article comes out front page on the obituaries. And the first line read, Terry Shields, who began promoting her daughter, Brooke, as a child model and actress when she was an infant and allowed her to be cast as a child prostitute, died on Wednesday. What an opener. The obituary's author highlighted completely out of context the most salacious facts and quotes. He painted her as a desperate single mom who sold her daughter into prostitution and nudity for her own profit. He even distorted mom's most famous quote, mistaking her wry humor for deep abuse. The quote is, fortunately, Brooke was at an age where she couldn't talk back. And she contextualizes the quote. She says, this was about me doing a soap ad, not about me playing a child prostitute. I also want to say, I think that it's hard when you're recalling somebody else's words and those are the words they're using. That is what the phrase of her character was. I recognize that there is no such thing as a child sex worker. There's only abuse. But that's what this movie that she was in was about. As a child, I literally couldn't imagine my life without her. I used to think that if mom died, I'd die too. Now I'm still here with two daughters of my own. And this book is about understanding what came before and what comes next. So she wants to write this book to let you guys know that that's not all she was, that she actually was a mother that she loved. I'm not holding her up on a pedestal either. There's been so much written about my mom, and most of it has been quite negative. This is by no means an attempt to idolize or condemn her. It is simply my turn to tell the story as I saw and felt it. It's about the 48 years that I knew, yet never really knew my mother. Spoiler alert. This is the craziest book I've ever read because it opens with that introduction being like, you got my mom all wrong. She wasn't this horrible stage mother. It's like, she was worse. She she was a horrible stage mother and an alcoholic. And I'm just like, oh, Brooke, I wonder if you read this book back and you're like, I guess that obit was kind of right. It's weird. She's like, I want to show you all the other sides of her mom. But all the other sides were like, not necessarily better. And I guess this is a really interesting and heartbreaking book about loving an imperfect person because it is okay to love someone who's hurt you. It is completely understandable to have a longing in your body to connect to your family And to want to see the best side of your parents and to excuse certain behaviors and to like rationalize certain behaviors, that doesn't mean you can't love them, but that doesn't mean they were a good person and a good mom. Yeah. I mean, this book is about the fact that you you want to go no contact. How about one of them dies? You know what I mean? This is a book about her mom passing away. The fact that even in her death, like you can never take away that part of you. That longing always exists. Yeah. But I think her longing also clouds the right and wrong of her mom's behaviors. What I see in this book is I think she spent so much time defending her mom against these accusations that she was this horrible stage parent who did essentially sell her daughter into, you know, she did nudity at 11. She was a child prostitute in a movie at 11. And they like, for some reason, had to film her naked, even though it was like shoulders up. And I was like, well, then why was she naked? I don't. Why was she naked? I could not for the life of me understand what was going on there. I mean, this is like disgusting to read about. And she is like, she wasn't a stage mom. That was fine. It was art. We were happy. I loved doing it. I was very mature for an 11 year old, which I'm like, Brooke. But then she's like, the real problem was her alcoholism. And it's crazy the way that I think in order to be like, you guys are wrong about her. She was abusive in a way you don't even know about her. She has to then say the other accusations are completely wrong. And so that's what I'm interested in in Pretty Baby is I wonder if she's come to a place of calm in herself where she can say, no, also allowing me to do that was wrong. Why didn't she protect me? Yeah. 
So she talks about her mother, who was my mother. I believe I knew her better than anybody else did, and I didn't know her at all. I could wax philosophical and venture to say that my mother never fully knew herself and that the persona she created became her reality. But basically, at the core of it, vulnerability equaled weakness in my mother's eyes. This, I think, is such an interesting line. For years, I thought she was the strongest, most honest, and forthright woman ever. Looking back, I see that she was the most truthful white liar I will ever know. And even this, there's certain little things that Brooke says that I go, white liar? What is that? She was just a liar. Yeah. She wasn't telling white lies. She was inventing realities to manipulate and control you. So she goes into her mom's childhood. Her mom, of course, the generational trauma. Her mom was raised by a mother whose mother had died and had to raise all the children. Her grandmother, it seemed like, never really loved her mom. Her mom's dad had a whole second family that they never knew about until they found out in genealogy. They were raised very poor in Newark, New Jersey. She says her mother eventually remarried and met and married John Schman. Could that be real? Could John Schman be a real name? <laughs> I think that Brooke was raised believing John Schman was real. Brooke cannot separate her mother's truth from the actual truth. So I do believe that her mom was like, ah, you know, she married some guy, John Schman. And Brooke was like, noted. And is that with SH or CH? <laughs> Step grandfather, John Schman. <laughs> As a child, mom was left on her own a great deal and learned to be quite independent. And she was very beautiful. She was super cute. And she always talked about how she was imaginative and adventurous too. And her inventive way of thinking ended up giving me confidence to think outside the box and trust that my thoughts were unique. She was also a troublemaker. Everywhere she went, she says she excelled at everything. She was very beautiful. She would run away from home and sneak into the movie theater. And she just had an absolute love for the cinema. She was said to light up every room she entered. She was special in every way. Soon my mother started setting her sights past Newark and across the Hudson River to the bright lights in more cosmopolitan Manhattan. She wanted more. She wanted a big, fabulous life. And I guess she felt Newark couldn't provide it. She was stunningly beautiful and her laugh was infectious. She excelled at everything she tried and she read people astutely. She knew she was somehow different from her peers and wasn't the type to want to settle down. This part's funny to me. My mother wanted a more upskill career, but she had no experience in education or sales or management, but she didn't see that as an obstacle. She often said to me growing up, Brookie, where there's a will, there's a way. Don't take no for an answer and never let him see you sweat. Figure out what you want and find a way. That's just every saying that was invented before 1991. <laughs> That's just all the phrases. <laughs> hey, and when it rains, it pours, Brookie. And if I had a nickel... <laughs> I was trying to think of another saying, and that was all of them. <laughs> she came to New York City, and she was very beautiful, and she loved to be in every room. She's friends with the gays. She's up in the theater. She had a fiancé that she loved, and they would go out on the town, and they had such fun. But one day, after they got engaged, he was hit by a car. His body was thrown 30 feet. He was dead on impact, and by the time the ambulance came, his watch and wallet had been stolen. I can only imagine the sense of loss my mother must have experienced. I believe that because she lost her dad as a kid and then her fiancé, a deep fear of abandonment began planting its roots in her heart. Mom was a tough cookie in many ways, and she did what she could to move forward. So this is her really starting to like over-rationalize all of her mom's thoughts and actions. Okay, for me, this isn't even a problem because I don't disagree. I'm sure that when she had a baby, she was very like, okay, this is all I have and like so many people have left. But then here is where I'm like, all right, Brooke. Says who? Her life continued and she found other suitors, but no proposals she wanted to accept. She wanted to date, have fun, be entertained, and I'm guessing drink. She was the life of every party and I don't believe her drinking had done more at this point than help her maintain her fun girl status. So interestingly enough, her mom's drinking never became a problem until Brooke was in her early tween years and started noticing that she was drunk all the time. And I'm like, okay, Brooke, so is that the truth or is that just when you started noticing it? Your mom died saying that she never once had a problem with alcohol, that everyone else had a problem with her drinking. 
And so for you to be like, and her drinking was never a problem, she told me, until I forced her to acknowledge it was a problem. I'm like, no, I bet she was an alcoholic back then too. I bet she was an alcoholic back then too. All of her friends were bartenders who were looking out for her. So one time she was dating this guy named Murray and one of her bartender friends was like, your boyfriend Murray is here with another woman who it turns out was Murray's wife. Murray was 20 years older than her and like a rich Broadway producer. Yeah. So she shows up naked wearing a fur coat to this bar and just flashes Murray and his date and then leaves. Brooke tells it like, ah, another crazy story of my mom. But that just tells you what kind of woman she was. And I'm like, okay, what kind of woman was she? Because that is crazy. And she's like, that's how she was always getting one up on everybody. And I'm like, who was she one upping there? When she walked into that restaurant, who in that restaurant went, damn, she won this round. (laughs) Like, I don't even know what that was supposed to accomplish. But it was something. She says, it seemed that she was longing for, craving an escape from her roots, yet she could never quite give them up. And this is, again, one of the things that I wonder if Brooke has kind of revisited at all. But she says a lot of why she was never fully accepted into Brooke's dad's family and to like higher society in New York is because she was from Newark, that she didn't have a college education, that she kind of had an accent that she couldn't get rid of. And I'm like, was it the accent, Brooke? Or was it she was always drunk and showing up naked to places? She has this way of being like, people were so hard on her just because of her upbringing. And I'm like, it seems like they were hard on her because of her actions. People do assimilate into higher society when they're beautiful and they get in there. But you have to kind of let go of who you are and where you came from a little bit. I mean, Mm -hmm. we see that in movies all the time. And so the fact that her mom wouldn't do that, she's like, How insane is it they wouldn't just accept her for her? Of course, there's classism. I'm sure they look down on her to some degree, but she did not help her case by showing up naked. And I also do think the way that she kept being like, people loved that she drank. That's what made her fun. The bartenders loved her. And I'm like, I don't know, Brooke. I have a feeling that she was in the same way that you were stressed to be around her all the time. It was hard for other people to be around her. Mom looks happy in the photos I have from this time. I believe that during this period of her life, she might have actually been. There was no sadness in her eyes yet. This may have been the happiest I had ever seen her. Again, she had never seen her at this point. Brooke wasn't even born yet. I held on to the fantasy that one day I'd be able to help mom return to that feeling of happiness in her life. She's not alive yet. She doesn't know her mom at this time. And there's just like this never ending uphill battle and like desperation in Brooke Shields where she's like, I have to help my mom get to this point. And it's like, what point? This is a never ending dream because you don't even know what version of her existed then. And also, this is not something that ever came from inside her mom. She acknowledges this a lot. And I think she references a lot that she's very much like the textbook case of an adult child of an alcoholic, always hoping that if one thing had been different, if Brooke had just done something differently, if she made a little bit more money, if she had been able to save her mom in this way, if she hadn't sent her to the wrong rehab the first time, that maybe things would have been different. And I think that that is very symptomatic of that kind of codependence. And I think that this is another symptom of it, this idea that there was a past. And that is what fuels the hope, these imagined situations where things were better that you never saw with your own eyes. But if you could only be better yourself, maybe you could get her back there. Yeah. And I think that that's like the heartbreaking part of this. If asked, mom always boasted that late 64 and 65 were a very good and busy time. Over the course of a year, my mother met my father, got pregnant, married my dad, had me, and got divorced. Her mom, Terry Terrific, I don't think we've actually said her name yet. She goes by Terry, and Brooke calls her Terry Terrific. Terry Terrific meets Brooke's dad. He's six foot seven. That is hot. (laughs) (laughs) He has a Roman nose and rich ancestry. Yeah, his mom was like a princess from Italy. And his dad was a famous tennis player. And so his dad had like married into the society of New York City. But her dad had really grown up Upper East Side, house in the Hamptons, very waspy, typical rich guy. So they're dating. Her mom gets pregnant and his family 
pay her mom to get an abortion. And she has no intention of getting an abortion. So she just takes the money and goes shopping. He did not seem to have any qualms about my mother's age. She was eight years older than he was. And this was not common in the 60s. When my mother originally told me this story, she had altered it entirely and decided to tell me that my father had left the country during this time. So what Brooke had been told was that, you know, she got pregnant. She told the father. The father, like, left town, went back to Europe. And when he came home and saw that she had kept the baby, he fell in love with her and instantly got down to a knee and said, please, like, let me be your husband. Let me help you raise this baby. But what had actually happened was the grandfather had paid off the mom to get an abortion. Terry had not gotten the abortion. And the dad was in New York State the whole time, and they just, like, weren't together. When Brooke was born, they got married and tried to make it work. Yeah. And they did not make it work for very long. Immediately, he went to Europe. That is true that he went to Europe. And they were corresponding by letters. And it's weird because Brooke has all the letters that the father sent, but none of the letters that the mother sent. So she can see in the letters that he's like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know. And then suddenly he's like, no, can't we just be separated? Like, I don't want to divorce. I want to try to make it work. And so from what she can tell, the father was like, maybe we should take a break and see how it goes. And the mom was like, fine, we're divorced then. Don't come home. Well, 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 let's talk about wellness. Wellness is different for everyone, and Care Of wants to make it easy to take care of you. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently straight to your door. You go online and take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized, doctor-backed recommendation. It takes the guesswork out of what supplements are best suited for you. They send your daily supplements in individualized little packs so that you can have them on the go. It's so easy to know what supplements you need to take every day. I am currently in London with my supplements for the week. I'm so happy that I have them. I'm so happy that it is just an easy part of the routine. I have been thinking about really rounding out my wellness routine with supplements for so long now, and I had no idea where to start. And taking the care of quiz and really organizing my goals has been the perfect way to set me off on the wellness journey of this century. I love building my vitamins into my daily routine. It's so nice to be able to wake up, to know exactly what to take, to know when to take it. I like to open my little pack of vitamins and take them. And Bug always thinks that whenever I open a pack of vitamins, they're treats for her. So I take my vitamins and then I give her a treat. And we have this little routine together. I'll tell you, there's nothing cuter. I've been taking iron and vitamin C supplements, and especially with all the travel we've been doing lately, I'm pretty sure that they have done a really wonderful job helping me get through. Thank you to Care Of for sponsoring this week's episode. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code WORM50. That's TakeCareOf.com and the code WORM50 for 50% off your first order. I mean, she tells a lot of little aside stories that I think she thinks paint like a bigger, better picture, but are really just not important. Like her dad forgot to bring an ID to the city hall when they got married. I don't care. I do think that that is the telltale sign that you are not done thinking about your own life in a way that you should tell a memoir. I think a good memoir is one where you've reflected on and processed the contents of what happened. This is like a processing memoir. Like yes. she is figuring it out as she goes. And although I found this to be very honest and well-written and like I had a lot of compassion for Brooke, I think a non-celebrity memoir needs you to have finished the thinking because it's almost like a hoarder memoir. Like every moment is there. And it's because she's trying to think of every good story about her mom to explain her mom's behavior, to explain 
why she was so scared. And she's like, well, you have to know this and you have to understand that. And, and this thing, and she also did this thing, but then you can't tell what's like the important part because it's just like a lot of stories. It's a lot of stories. Cause I think you don't know what story you're trying to tell. And also when you like grow up where every moment is in crisis, you almost become numb to what was really important. Yes. It all feels equally important. Cause you're like every minute you think your mom might get into a car crash and die is equally stressful. She also tells the story of her own birth where after she was born, there was some medical issues and she was taken away. And I can't see how this could be true, but she says days passed before her mom was allowed to see her. Back then, they used to knock women out and you'd wake up and they'd be like, by the way, the baby was born. They were like insane back then to women who gave birth. So she began to get suspicious as to why her baby was being kept away from her. She started experiencing late night paranoia that it was all a lie and there was actually no baby. She feared the baby had died and that people were not telling her the truth. I would not learn until much later why mom had such a fear of me dying. So this is the first part where I don't think we need to get into it every time, but she much, much later, like on her mom's deathbed, finds out that before she was born, her mother had given birth to and lost a son. Yes. He had died 24 hours after he was born. So her mom is in the hospital, not seeing the baby. She's absolutely paranoid and freaked out. She runs to find this baby. And she says she goes into the room with all the incubators and cribs. And at the time, the company who made all of those was called Shields and Company. So she has this surreal moment where she hasn't seen her baby in days. She's on medication. She's out of it. And she's looking and every single crib has her baby's name on it. And so she's freaking the fuck out. She finally finds Brooke. And Brooke is like to the side with the other babies who are about to be put up for adoption. And she thinks that they were trying to put Brooke up for adoption. And so she grabs her baby and is like, we have to get out of here. And from then on... She straps Brooke to her chest and like never lets her go. They never part ways. Mom and I became obviously physically bonded and my dad remained seemingly less knowledgeable and comfortable with his baby. So he like doesn't really know how to raise her. He's traveling a lot for work. As we said, on one of these trips pretty early on within the first year of Brooke's life, her mom just gets a divorce. And from then on, Brooke's dad is almost like a distant relative who she sees once in a while, but they're not very close. The deal they come up with is that he'll always pay for her schooling, but her mom doesn't want any alimony. Yeah, and she does spend summers with him at his family's house in the Hamptons. I think she spends like weeks or weekends. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if it was yeah. entire summers. Like she definitely visits him. They live in the same city. They live like blocks away from yeah. each other. So she tells this story of her mom used to sometimes just go to her dad's office and they would wait outside. And then when he came walking out of his office every day at five o'clock or whatever time work gets out, whatever time the work bell rings, she would just like push Brooke and be like, go run and hug your dad. And so he would just be coming out of his office and his daughter would come running up and they would spend three minutes together. And then the mom would just take Brooke and they would leave. That is odd. This book was 400 pages. It could have been 280. It's so repetitive at times and you can feel her convincing herself of things. The most obvious example to me is an example we'll get to later about Tom Cruise, where she says the same thing like five times in a row. She convinced herself. But one of these, it reminds me of the Daily Mail. She has a photo of herself as a baby with her two parents. And she does two full paragraphs describing every detail of the photo. And you're like, yeah, I know. I can see. And also you're like, what does that even mean? And she's like, there's a photo where we look like a perfectly normal family. And then she goes through to describe what everybody's wearing in the photo. And you're like, you could have just said there's a photo where we look normal. Although my mother managed to stay in contact with many of the friends she made while with my father, she also maintained the friendship she'd cultivated outside his waspy circles. She made new friends as well. I mean, she talks about how her mom was just like effervescent, a woman about town, but like all to say that she had a lot of photographer and like art friends, which is how Brooke ends up making her way into modeling at 11 months. Yeah, she had a friend who the baby wouldn't blow a kiss or something. And they called her up and said, everybody loves your baby. Can you bring her down? And that was her first gig. I was not with any agency, so we had no percentage to give away, and the money from this first job went solely to my mother and me. 
Mom had periodically worked part-time at Brentano's bookstore, but the salary would not cover the childcare and living expenses. Though not required, dad did help out with the rent, but the chance for additional revenue being generated by us was clearly appealing. They found a manager for some time, but eventually they fired her. And her mother, for almost all of her career into her 20s, was her sole representation. No agent, no nothing. Later, we'll get into it, but she's like, I had no idea that people would negotiate better deals for you. And she talks about her young years. You know, it's very easy to romanticize your childhood years because I think, one, they're not even your own memories. They're memories that were more often than not told to you by your parents. I'm sure a lot of these were like her mom telling her what a great Halloween they had and look at this costume. And it's true. She's like, she made me costume. She loved to sew. This is like a lot of self-awareness, but she talks about how she was so bound to her mom that her mom's opinions would influence her taste buds. Like her mom would say, oh, I don't like that food. And she'd be like, oh, me either. And now it like tasted waxy to her. Everything her mom said had such a hold on her. Mom and I were rarely apart from each other and I'd do anything to make her happy and get her attention. She really like lived solely for her mom. And her mom was kind of her sole person. I don't think she's going to school. She was going around to all these adult things. It was just her and her mom. And where her mom was tended to be bars and stuff. So she grew up the baby in these social circles where often there weren't babies. She remembers calling her dad and saying, Dad, I just learned how to shoot pool from behind my back. I remember him saying, where are you? At a bar, I said, Jesus Christ. I'm sure dad wasn't thrilled with any of this, but I was seemingly safe and having fun. And my mother seemed in control. The argument was tough to have. And she also does give you these moments of her mom just being like a intense, stand out. That's my mom. So at one point, she and her mom used to travel quite a bit. She had this toy that she was obsessed with and she left it in an airport terminal and her mom got a taxiing plane to turn around so that she could go get her toy. There was an intensity and a care about her. It's good and it's bad. She really believed that her mom made the world turn. She talks about one time she had a raincoat she wanted to wear and it was beautiful outside. And her mom was like, well, I'll make it rain. And as soon as they stepped outside, it started raining. And like Brooke really believed that. She was like, my mom makes it rain. And in the more modern sense, it was Brooke who made it rain. (laughs) (laughs) During these years, my modeling career really began to take off. Mom was my manager, but she was hardly the typical stage mother one would have expected. She would ask if I wanted to go in for a job and then simply let me do my thing. She never grilled me on how it went inside the rooms and instead waited for me to volunteer information. So this is a belief she truly sticks by. And I think it is a different negative thing that she forgot to even cover for. (laughs) I think obviously your mom being a hovering stage mother who's forcing you to dance and jump when you don't want to is a bad thing. But being negligent and leaving your child alone in a room full of adults and not being cared for is also a negative thing. Again, this is one of those examples where she repeats over and over again. The very next paragraph was, my mother would never bribe me or force me to audition or work on things or on days where I didn't feel like it. And then like she just keeps being like she never made me do it. It was all me. It was all me. And then later in the book, she'll talk about how her mom never was violent or slapped her or hit her or anything. But it was like a mind control from the inside. So here she is being like, my mom never forced me to do anything. It was totally me. I was the one who wanted to do it. And it's like, yeah, well, where did all of your desires come from making your mother happy? I mean, your mom influenced how much you liked mac and cheese. So was it all you? And then she goes on to be like, my mom was a really good mom. You know, she only let me work after school because I wasn't supposed to miss any school. But then by the time she gets to 11. Yeah, that's when she starts missing a ton of school. She has one line about it. She goes, ironically, in high school when school was important, that's when I didn't really go. So she like kind of talks about being up to about eight, nine, and things are great. And of course, at eight, nine is when you start realizing the world. I wouldn't say it's a coincidence. And she's like, something around eight or nine, somehow, as time went on, I began thinking there was something wrong with my mom's drinking. 
We were so busy that it was easy to overlook, but looking back, I see that although I would not have had the vocabulary to articulate at the time, I realized that mom was a highly functioning alcoholic. She says a few times my mom never passed out from drinking, but there are two or three stories in this book of her mom passing out from drinking. One time was in church. She says we never miss church on Sundays, but one time my mom fell asleep in church and there was this really funny moment where she started clapping when we were supposed to be praying and she played it off like Lucille Ball. And it's like, oh, okay. And then she's like, but there were times it wasn't so funny. Like the time her mom fell asleep on Christmas Eve and Brooke was at an age where she did all the Christmas decorating for their family. And she was starting to have a suspicion that Santa wasn't real. And she did this thing where she's like, she saw her mom pass out and said, okay, I'm not going to wake her up. That way, if she doesn't wake up and the presents are under the tree, I know Santa's real. But if not, I know it was her all along and it's a test. And she also was like, I hope that if I wake up and go, your drinking ruins Christmas, she'll stop. But of course, she woke up. There were no presents on the tree. Christmas was ruined. And her mom didn't miss a beat. She just kept drinking. I can't imagine having an addiction so powerful that a comment like this from a child would leave me unchanged. I felt abandoned by her when she drank. Mom was a drunk. There was no Santa. And mom's drinking ruined Christmas. And in a way, everything. In the meantime, she has this weird double life where her father is very wealthy, has a house in the Hamptons, and he eventually has a wife who brings in three other children, two other children. Two other children, and then they have, I think, three more daughters. And they are just living a very normal, rich Upper East Side lifestyle parallel to her. And she says it was bizarre because she felt comfortable in both worlds. She would go to Patterson and Newark with her mom, and then she would go to Southampton with her dad and hang out at the Meadow Club. And she said it was weird being in all these worlds that she felt like her mom was not really allowed in. There's something tragic in the thought of my being introduced into and accepted by a part of society in which my own mother existed solely on the periphery. It feels like a choice, though. Okay, I agree. But I think it was alcoholism. Yes. Which I guess isn't a choice. Which isn't a choice. And that's why I'm like, I don't think it was what Brooke is pointing to. Brooke is like, you know, once you're born in Newark, you're scarred for life. You can never – listen, I beat it, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I was in Jersey. I got it out of me. She talks about her mom actually one summer rented an apartment in Southampton so that Brooke could hang out with all her friends. And all the moms and daughters were playing together one day. And Brooke's mom got so drunk that she went to like pet a little girl's hair and accidentally like tripped and ripped a clump of it out. Her ring got stuck in the hair and it like yanked the hair out. And the mom was like, why the fuck did you just pull my daughter's hair out? And they got kicked out of the play date. They were like, Brooke, do you want to stay? And she was like, no, I have to go with my mom. And she maintains that this was her mom not being accepted into society because why would a woman pull a girl's hair? Why would a grown woman do that? She's like, of course it started out as a moment of affection. She just tripped. Okay, I have a couple things to say. One, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter how much you love somebody. If you're so drunk that you're hurting children, you can't be in that house. Right. But also, she has like paragraph after paragraph about being like, she was just saying that the girl had pretty hair. She was just trying to be nice because the mother kind of accused her of being jealous of the hair. And I don't think that that's completely off base, to be honest. Brooke is obsessed with in this book being like, oh, my mom didn't care if I was a star. She barely brings up being beautiful. She does like once or twice in passing because like it technically was true that she was considered the most beautiful woman of the day, but she never explicitly brings it up she does one time be like and at one point there was a magazine that said I was most beautiful face so weird but she never explicitly says how important this was to her mother if anything she says the opposite she's like my mom didn't care if I was famous or not she just like wanted me to keep working or whatever and that is so fucking not true and I would not put it past her to drunkenly get jealous of another little girl who might have had one thing over Brooke because Brooke said she wasn't getting a lot of gigs at first because she didn't have that blonde, blue-eyed, all-American look that was the norm in the 70s. She was quote-unquote too European looking. Yeah. <laughs> too European to be white. <laughs> so I don't know. Like to me, 
Either way, it's not a good story. And I understand where the mom was coming from. But the way that Brooke is like, she would never be jealous of a little girl. She would never be jealous of another little girl's beauty. Anyway, she was obsessed with making sure that I was known as the most beautiful woman in the world. I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay. She has a little bit of anger towards her stepmom that she really only brushes up against. And she really takes a lot of pride in the fact that one of her stepsisters, Diana, loved her own mom so much. She's like, Diana basically came over to our family and viewed my mom as a second mom. But, you know, my stepmom, Dee Dee, was not my mom. And it's like, okay. She was like profoundly jealous, I think, of Dee Dee was the ultimate Upper East Side Hamptons mom. She was neat. She was quiet. She seems teeny tiny. She was beautiful. And there was a ton of order there. And they had nannies and help and dinner was at six and everyone made it and didn't matter what happened. She talks about the difference of the two worlds. It's so funny. She spends like pages being like, I love that I'd go to my dad's house and it'd be super organized and orderly and there'd be structure and I knew exactly what was coming next. And then I'd get a break and get to go to my mom's house where, you know, we were eating what we found on the street whenever we woke up. And, and she's like, so it was kind of fun to have both. Meal times. What's a meal time? That's crazy. That's no fun. The duality, however, would create confusion later. Not clearly adopting any one side would later prove to be perplexing. Where did I really belong? It was as if I was living two parallel lives. The environment my father provided was the antithesis of that which I had lived with my single mom. So she starts doing movies. She never really talks about making a decision of any kind to start auditioning for movies or to go in for anything other than modeling. But at some point that must have happened because she all of a sudden is in a lot of movies. So her first movie, she dies pretty quickly and she's like, oh, it was fun because me and my friends used to always act like we were suffocating. And so it was really easy for me to act like I died, even though in the audition I farted. (laughs) And then she does Annie Hall, where Woody Allen asks her mom out on a date. Well, first of all, the joke is that all the other children are ugly and she's supposed to be so beautiful and she's like the object of Woody Allen's affection. I'm sure it's like in a past tense, but still he's such a creep. They cut it completely. But yeah, they went on a date. She said he was too neurotic. (laughs) (laughs) My father was uncomfortable with my fame and was intent on it not being a part of my life with him. I find it so interesting whenever we have these celebrities. And I think we see it a lot where there are divorced parents of a child star where obviously one of them is driving the career. There's no child star without a parent intently driving the career. But the other parent is kind of against it. And I'm like, well, how against it were you? Because they still are famous. I don't think he had a say in a fucking thing she did. Yeah. She's always like trying to tell stories that make her mom look good. So one of the ones we get is that when she was young, they went to some play where before the play started, I think it was Greece at a hula hooping competition and everybody up there was an adult who had hula hooped in their childhood and Brooke had never hula hooped in her life. But if you won, you get to meet the cast. And so she went up there and with like all the grit in the world, she freaking won. And her mom uses that throughout her life as like, remember the hula hooping competition, like you can do anything you set your mind to just go out there and try. And she's like, see, she was always encouraging me to try new things. Oh, God. So then she gets the movie Pretty Baby. I did some commercials and I had two movies under my belt, but we had no idea if I was an actress, a model, or a spokesperson for good causes. What causes? My mother never had any clear plans regarding a career path for her daughter. We just kind of kept rolling along with whatever came our way. One day I could be doing some print ad for an epidemic of young pregnancy, and the next I could be doing an amazing ad for the inside of Life magazine, standing in a bathing suit next to Lizanne, a fellow model and close friend. I think one thing that's really interesting is that she can't decide if her mom's aimlessness with her career was a good thing or a bad thing. I think sometimes she poses it to be like, my mom wasn't an overbearing stage mom. We were just taking opportunities as they came. It was just like a cool thing that I got to do. And sometimes she's like, my mom had no direction for my career. And that's why I was never like a celebrated actress. And I was just a child star that like never really found direction. Yeah. I mean, even here she talks about the time she auditioned for Pretty Baby and she went in the audition by herself, which is already like so scary. 
She wasn't even in the room. I've always been under the impression that mom never wanted to be thought of as a stage mother who hovered and interfered. She wanted to be the unstage mother who was part of the team. In actuality, mom was much more of an emotional hoverer who affected me internally. And this, of course, is in direct contrast to earlier. She's like, it was totally driven by me. My mom didn't even care if I went. Yeah. And then she goes, she never really considered nurturing my talent or pushing me to study acting. Rather, it seemed that success was measured by property and popularity. So she talks about shooting this movie, Pretty Baby. I honestly don't want to give a lot of time to it because she does not condemn it. And it's really horrifying. I don't remember the question of nudity came up in the meeting, but I was later under the impression that my mom had discussed it with the producers and they had agreed on no explicit nudity. She was promised it would be filmed in a way that I was protected. I honestly didn't give it a thought. I think I assumed it would all be okay. Somehow I had no qualms about any of it. I was 11. I'd go to the bathroom with the door open in front of people and have full-on conversations. I was not conscious of my body. Never young, but somehow youthful. So she has this whole thing where it was okay for her to be naked because in her mind, it was very innocent and she did not feel sexually about her body. So she did not care. Again, she is a kid. uh, She's 11 years old. Her co-star is a man. It's an adult man who falls in love with her and they kiss. For some reason, they have to take a photo of her naked and she was supposed to wear a thong at one point and they decide because the thong wasn't even in shoot, she should just take it off entirely. Does that make sense to you? No. Did I read that right? I like don't understand what happened here, but this was really appalling. Her mom was not even on set. I'm sorry. First of all, this never should have happened. Like the fact that this film even exists is horrifying. But the fact that this was the content of the film and there was no guardian on set protecting her is really just, I like can't even talk about and it. And she keeps talking about how she was fine because she was not like other 11-year-olds. She was very mature for her age. She was both mature and immature in a way that made this perfectly acceptable. So on the one hand, she was very mature and that she understood that it wasn't pornography. It was art. She kept being like, it was really important to me and my mom. My mom loved art films and this was an art film and it was important to both of us. No 11-year-old loves an art film. Let's start there. She's like, I loved Fellini. No, you didn't. Fucking not. How do you pronounce Fellini? (laughs) Brooke. You got it. 11-year-old Brooke. And so she's like, it was art, and I was very immature, so I understood that. And then also, I was very immature and unaware of my body, and my body wasn't at all sexual. So to me, it wasn't sexual, and that's why it was totally fine for me to be naked. The thing about being a child is it doesn't really matter how you feel. It matters about the danger that you're being put into. It just doesn't matter that you didn't care. In the same way that you can't ask a child, oh, are you sleepy after staying up all night? Like you just cannot let a child make that decision. Right. So we got that moment earlier where she's talking about the way her mom creates these white lies, this other version of her story that she exists in. And I think this book is Brooke telling the white lie version of her life while also recalling the real version and not knowing how to reconcile the two. I loved having this entirely separate family and life to the one mom and I lived together. It felt safe and fun and we all had a common goal. But things began getting difficult and I was becoming run down and tired. Like back to back. That is not two pieces that I tied together. Back to back, she talks about how much she loved being on set, how invigorating the experience is, and then immediately says, I was so run down and tired. She has this thing that she does where whenever she talks about these situations that have been criticized as overtly sexual, and this is not like, oh, well, in 2023, we think it's bad to have sex with 11-year-olds. They didn't know back then. The minute this movie came out, it was highly criticized. Like, people knew. And she does this thing where she talks about the genius of the men that created it. She talks about the director. He could be difficult with me, but he was never mean or overtly demanding. I learned to navigate his often distant manner. And even though he seemed removed, I came to trust that no words were good words. I never fully knew whether he was ultimately happy with my portrayal of his lead character, but I had to believe he was getting what he wanted from me. At times, I craved more direction and felt awkward not being constantly told what to do. But I began the movie by asking questions or if I was okay, but as time went on, I too quieted and trusted my instincts a bit more. Sadly, this would be one of the last films in a long while during which I was learning my craft and experiencing hints of self-confidence. I believe it was because of the quality and artistic caliber of the director. 
He had a vision and he expressed himself quietly and without unnecessary chatter. The cinematographer was a genius, a gentle, beautiful soul whose art came out through his eyes and his heart. I just feel like these are all adult men who are like, no, the story that needs to be told is one where you find the most beautiful 11-year-old girl and get her naked. That's so genius of them. So she talks again back and forth saying the costumes were gorgeous, but her feet would bleed in the period-specific shoes. And so she's like, it was so fun to get dressed up and I loved it so much, but also I was in agony the entire time. And because the corset was old-timey, they used actual antique clothes that gave her a rash. Yeah. And then they also, for some reason, were not going by union rules. So they were working like way longer than they were allowed to, not even just by child labor laws, but by like regular laws. They were working insane hours. And finally, her mom couldn't get the director to stop. And I guess there was all these stories about how her mom was so intrusive. And she was like, no, she just thought we should be working no more than 15 hours a day. So as soon as she brings up that she's exhausted and her feet hurt and her body is breaking out to her mom, her mom will like step up and say, you have to fix these hours. And she paints this like her mom being a hero. And it's like, why were you in this position at all? Why didn't your mom notice until you said specifically, hey, I'm bleeding constantly from these costumes? Why didn't anyone notice? You guys would not believe how much time I've spent running to and from the post office. When we started doing CNBC merch, I would send every single piece of merch individually from my apartment, and I didn't even own a printer. It was tough days. Stamps.com has been a lifesaver. For the last 25 years, they've been helping businesses like yours, like ours, save time and money so you can focus on your business knowing Stamps.com has all of your postage needs covered with premium discounts and incredible rates. Stamps.com is basically a post office in your office. All you need is a computer and a printer. They even send you a free scale so you have everything you need to get started. If you need a package pickup, you can easily schedule it through Stamps.com. And if you sell products online, Stamps.com integrates with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Stamps.com also has huge carrier discounts up to 84% off UPS and USPS rates. They're also automatically going to tell you your fastest and cheapest shipping options. Having stamps.com makes life so much easier. I also don't live near a post office anymore. So if I have something to send, it sits in the corner for a few days, weeks, months. Time will tell. But with stamps.com, it's so easy to get postage right there in my house to get my items shipped and to feel productive and not have a pile of things building up in the corner. Set your business up for success and get started with Stamps.com today. Sign up with the promo code WORM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com and click the microphone at the top of the page and enter the code WORM. So she talks about when this movie came out and the press was so awful about it. Just as an 11-year-old shouldn't have been in this situation, the press can't be mean to an 11-year-old about it. But she talks about the process of getting the photos taken. And she was like, it was a direct copy of the photographer in real life's photo. There was a scene adapted from the actual historical photo where Violet's image was to be taken, where she lay naked on a chaise lounge. I had been given a G-string, but it was determined by all of us. What do you mean by all of us? You're 11. That it wasn't necessary. My legs were slightly crossed and Lewis did not want it to be pornographic in any way. The shot was quick and represented the snap of Bullock's lens right before my character jumps up to petulantly destroy some photo plates. And so she's like, I put the G-string back on once I was standing. The photograph is only from the shoulders up. I had not yet learned how to use my sexuality as any type of tool and was therefore able to play this scene with the calm quality it called for. Her mother wasn't there, as we already said. So then she talks about the press's reception of it and how they were very upset about it. 
When the movie came out a year later, the press was up in arms about the whole thing. There was a sense of fury and a need to assume that I was a victim in this circumstance. The press wanted me to have shame and regret and could not handle my being cognizant and wise and self-possessed. There was a firestorm and mom took most of the heat. My poise, whether innate or earned, gave me a certain adult perspective and I remained clear in my convictions of the scene and the film in its entirety. What do you mean you were a wise 11-year-old? You were a self-possessed, cognizant, wise 11-year-old? How could you as a mother of two little girls look and think like, yeah, at 11 years old, there is any possibility that a child could be wise and cognizant and self-possessed enough to decide to do a nude scene. That is so crazy. And that is why I'm actually very happy that we read this book before the Pretty Baby documentary, because I assume that documentary will be about this movie in some way and the way that she was perceived and the situation she was put in. And I wonder if she's changed her opinion because this feels so directly in defense of her mom. Like, of course, my mom made the right choice to have me pose nude. I was wise. I was wise. She says, my daughters, I would never let them do that. But this was different. It was also a really short scene. What are you talking about? It is really stressful and sad to me the way she can't separate. I would never, ever in a million years let my daughter do this. But for me, it was fine. I mean, she has to say a lot of the things she went through on this movie were okay. Otherwise, her mom did like sell her into essentially child pornography. Yeah. So then Susan Sarandon was on this movie and she starts talking about the weird relationship between them and how her mom was like, she's jealous of you. I guess she was. But what was allowed to happen to 11-year-old Brooke Shields? Susan Sarandon was supposed to slap her across the face and she says she could not fake the slap. So she had to slap Brooke across the face. And I guess I had to do this shot so many times that there were fingerprints on Brooke's face. They had to reshoot it nine times to get every angle correctly. What the fuck was happening on this movie? They were just like beating up a little naked 11-year-old. And Brooke is like, but I get it. It was for the film. And she's like, my one comeuppance was when I watched the film, you can still see some red outline on my face because they hit me so many times. So that kind of ruined the continuity of it all. And I'm like, yeah, you got them, Brooke. And she's like, but anyway, it was for art. She's like, I don't regret it. I'm happy I did it. It was one of the last good movies I ever did. (laughs) And I was like, okay. So when her mom calls the union because she's like, these hours are insane and this is illegal, I think. I guess the mafia was involved in funding the movie. Well, the mafia is often involved in unions. Okay. Somehow the mafia is involved and they cut her mom's brakes as a warning. And so she and her mom are leaving a bar. Her mom gets pulled over and gets a DUI. And she's like, listen, my mom was so good at drunk driving. She was drunk, but she wouldn't have been that reckless. It was definitely tampering. And somehow she did get a mechanic to come and say that her brakes were cut. Brooke has this thing where she lives in constant fear that her mom is going to die drunk driving, but also will defend to the death her mom's ability to drunk drive. She's like, even once I turned 16, she was a better drunk driver than I was regular driver. So she just kept driving us around. I mean, it's hard. She needs this in her heart, but I don't think it should be on paper for the people. Yeah. I mean, I find it interesting to read, to see this perspective. And I think this is probably healing for her. I'm excited to see if things have changed, if things have changed, because this really feels like a first draft of looking at yourself. (laughs) You know what this feels like? The Jeanette McCurdy book, the first time she went to therapy and was like, my mom was a really good mom. She gave me bulimia as a gift. (laughs) Exactly. After this movie wraps, once again, she's insisting that this was an incredible experience, despite the fact that the people behind the production tried to kill her mom, despite the fact that she was bleeding and in pain in all of the costumes, despite the fact that she was exhausted and starting to go insane and Susan Sarandon kept slapping her and she had to be naked on film. Besides all of that, she loved the experience. However, as soon as the movie wrapped, she asked her mom if she could go to a salon and just cut all of her hair off. And she says subconsciously this was because she did not want to have to be called back for reshoots. I'm sorry. To see those things all together, to be like, I actually loved this. I just needed to cut all my hair off just in case is very sad. 
Together, mom and I made the decision that we were done. I would not be filming any more movies. I think she makes another movie less than one year later. She at one point made five movies in two years. Like a year after that, after she was done making movies. So she enrolls in regular school on the Upper East Side because her dad's paying for school. And she does not do well. And she says she's happy on the one hand that she got to have like a normal life. But on the other hand, this book is written from a place of her feeling like she had a failed career that after her teenage years, she never got it back. And it's funny because we don't think of her as a child star because right now child star is so synonymous with Disney, Nickelodeon, etc. But she was somebody who is still being carried by the celebrity that she built as a child. And she very much feels like a failure. Yes. And a lot of this book is like, if only I had made this career decision or that career decision, maybe I would have been a successful actress. I loved acting. She says there didn't seem to be a great deal of thought put into any of it, any of her work beyond the question of money and the possibility of adventure. It seems that my mom made many of my career choices based on everything but the creative factors. One of the only things that she'll condemn her mom for is that she didn't make choices with her future in mind. And she says one of the things that was confusing to her mom was because so many people loved that Brooke was a raw talent. And so her mom was like, well, you can't go to acting school. What, are you going to become a studied raw talent? That's crazy. And I'm like, no, no, no. You start with raw talent as a child. And then they mold it into talent. Yeah. She does another movie, a pinball movie. She says the movie itself sucks and doesn't do well, but it was a fun movie to make, which was a nice relief from, you know, when she was an 11-year-old kissing an adult. Yeah. She says that she just played pinball all day and her mom got to drink all day and they were both so happy. I'm rather conflicted by all of it. I appreciate that my work did not take precedence over my young life, yet this attitude also seemed to keep me from committing to my work in a way imperative for growth and to cause a lack of clarity as to what I really was. She does another movie where they have her in the car with Eric Roberts doing car stunts and they have to crash and they just have her in the car. I don't understand what the fuck was going on on all of these sets. She is in danger so often. And not just emotional danger and trauma. They're putting her in physical danger. She's in another movie with Susan Sarandon where they're supposed to be Romanov gypsies. And so they make everyone dye their hair dark. And Susan Sarandon's mad because she has to permanently dye her hair dark. And Brooke's mother insists that they only temporarily dyed Brooke's hair because she has such beautiful natural coloring. And she's like, see, people don't look at the good things my mom did for me. She protected my hair. And I was like, ah, yes, a true love. The hair that you chopped off to try to get out of doing any other movies. When Pretty Baby premiered at Cannes Film Festival, it was like maligned. It was maligned, but also people were obsessed over her. She said someone tried to cut a piece of her hair off to keep that she has never in her life been grabbed at that way. I wonder if it was worse because of her perspective as a child. It felt even worse, even if it would have been the same as an adult. But she like didn't go back for 20 years because it was such a horrific experience. When it gets to her, her mom goes, fuck them if they can't handle it. Are you proud of what you did? Well, then fuck them. That's all you need to think about. Another great saying. She never let Brooke read her own reviews and she said it was to protect her. But then Brooke later regretted not reading the reviews because she was like, I was so protected from the outside world and what people said to me that when it started trickling in, I had no emotional antibodies. I hadn't built up a defense against the public. And she says people either decided mom was the enemy or they appreciated her courage and her ferocity when it came to protecting her daughter. I'm sorry. Raise your hand if you appreciate her courage and ferocity when it came to protecting her daughter. Who here was like, now that is a mama bear. (laughs) She does another movie where they're filming it in the desert and so they're moving from area to area to film on mules and at one point her mom because of her asthma and her drinking has to get airlifted out and she is embarrassed that her mom caused a scene and her mom is pissed because brooke could have gone on the helicopter with her brooke chose to keep riding the mules with everybody else and to her that was like the first of all betrayals like you weren't there for me brooke says i was always worrying about mom's safety i never wanted anything to happen to her and i always felt i had to protect her 
And she tells a story about one time they were on the George Washington Bridge driving and the brakes and their Jeep went out because like the Jeep had to be recalled later. It was just a malfunction. And her mom says, get in the back, buckle your seat, like protect yourself. And Brooke stayed in the front and said, no, if you die, I die. And that was like such a moment of pride for her mom that her mom was like, she doesn't even want to live without me. That's how much she loves me. That's love. I still felt incredibly connected to her, but her drinking had become scarier and more difficult. Mom would not stop drinking for me. I could only believe I wasn't doing enough to make her stop. It took me about 30 years to realize that nothing I did could make her stop if, in fact, she did not want to or could not fight it herself. I realize now that I did an incredible amount of work at this time, five movies in two years, but it made sense for many reasons. I was popular and directors and producers wanted me. But on a personal level, it was just the easiest and happiest way to live with my mother. And she talks about like the safety of being on set when there are drivers for the most part and it's like a closed situation so her mom can just get drunk every day and they're stable and in one spot. It also feels like vacation where it's like not real life where everything's different and maybe this could be a new version of you. It feels like she was constantly looking for a fresh start where things would change. The problem my mom's drinking became worse and worse over the next few months. It's ironic, but I believe that if it were not for the entertainment industry, I would have been a train wreck. I would have crumbled if I did not have a place to hide. I had to be professional because it was my job and I was getting paid. I couldn't fall to pieces. So around the age of 13, she realizes that her mom's drinking is out of control and she finally learns with the help of a therapist and specialists how to stage an intervention. And so she is able to sneak up and she goes, it's my belief that you only get one shot in an intervention because after that, they're watching you. And she's like, they can see it from a mile away. And so she gets a place at a Minnesota rehab all set up. She gets her friends. She gets specialists call in. And at 13 years old, she leads her mother's intervention. And she says her mother has this way of when you're ranting and raving, she just lets you finish and then goes, are you finished? And then like comes at you and is like, how dare you? So they have this intervention and Brooke is like, please do it for me. Like, I love you. I just want our relationship to be better. Making it all about how much she loves her. I think the way you're supposed to. And the specialist is like, I'm just here to help Brooke. And then she's like, well, help her because I don't have a problem with drinking. But if you all have a problem with my drinking, I'll go for you guys. And this I think is really interesting. I had low self-esteem, not because I was a model, but because I was a daughter. The movie business kept me afloat and sane. My mother's drinking suspended my stardom. I think it's very interesting the way that these two things have to exist in opposition. She has to say being a child actor was good. It was the drinking that was bad. There can't be flaws in her career. She talks a lot about how much her life was dissected and taken by the public, that every single part of her, even when she goes to college, she's being hounded by paparazzi. I feel like it's hard to imagine now, but at this point, she was like on the cover of TMZ. Her mom was constantly selling stories. It was very important to her mom that her face always be out there, that she be known. Her first period was talked about. So much of herself was given to the public that I almost think it's nice for her to be like, you have this decision about my life. Like, you don't know my mom. Like, the one thing you can't take from me is an understanding about what was wrong with my mom. Yeah. Like, you have no idea. You're actually dead wrong. It was her stage mominess that actually saved my life. When she's going into high school, her mom just like compiles a bunch of letters and photos of her and just publishes it and calls it Brooke's book. I mean, there's a lot that her mom just sells to the public. So she has this intervention. Her mom goes, Brooke is like the minute she left, one, I knew it was too easy. The fact that she didn't go down with a fight meant that I didn't win at all. And two, she immediately regretted it. She missed her. She's like, I wanted to call her and have her come back. They would talk on the phone. They sent letters. She went to visit her for family week. And she was like, it was a horrible, depressed place. And she goes, I was really worried when my mom called me and said, I'm actually the leader of group therapy. I get all these extra responsibilities. And Brooke says, that's when I knew she had tricked them. I don't believe she ever committed authentically and therapy never fully registered with her. The recovery catchphrase is like a dutiful student, but all the while she was scoffing at how they didn't actually apply to her. Like a man. She beguiled the staff with her humor and her street smarts. She was incredibly intuitive about the way others behaved and what their needs were. She could outwit almost everyone, but sadly she was still an alcoholic and hardly two steps closer to recovery. 
this is a theme that she recognizes with her mom, that her mom doesn't ever help herself because she always thinks she's superior. You know, in New Jersey, she thought she was better than everyone. In rehab, she thought that she was better than everyone. Later, when she gets dementia, she thinks she's better than everyone at the retirement home. And it's so funny because Brooke sees it very clearly that her mom never got the help she needed because she refused to like admit that there was a problem. And then meanwhile, here's Brooke going, you don't understand. I'm not like other 11-year-olds. Yeah. I love doing nudity. <laughs> I also think it's very interesting that she talks about how her mom was too smart for the therapy. I mean, she falls for it. She's like, you know, my mom believed she was better than everyone and that's why it didn't work on her. But she was better than everyone and that's why she was able to beat it, essentially. And that is not true. It's just therapy can only work if you want it to work. And I wonder how much these people at the rehab, like they're not your family. Like, sure, they want to help you and it's their job to help you, but they can only do so much if you don't want to. She wasn't outwitting them. She was just saying, I'm not going to do this. They can't change your brain for you. Everyone loves to say, I'm too smart to be happy. I'm too smart to be helped. I'm blah, blah, blah. You know what's smart? Living a good, healthy life. <laughs> That's smart. I've had this where I thought like, oh, what could therapy do for me? I've had exes that are like that where it's like, what could therapy teach me that I don't already know? And it's not even that it could teach you anything. It's just making the agreement and the decision within yourself that you want to change. So she comes back and she does become kind of a dry alcoholic, which is when you haven't really committed to figuring out the underlying problems. You're not really working on yourself, but you are at that time not drinking alcohol even though the addiction still rules your life and your behaviors. And Brooks says, I couldn't stop being nasty to her. She neither fought me nor began drinking just yet. It was also awkward and foreign, and I realized I had no idea how to act around her when she was sober. I was so used to navigating her drinking and being sad, angry, or afraid that without the existence of trauma, I was floundering. I hated her drinking, but at least I knew what to expect. The protocol of being the child of an alcoholic was second nature to me. So without it, I was, again, slightly lost. I also realized that in a way I saw myself as a better person than she was when she drank. This is so interesting. I think this is exactly what Rachel Finley says, that all you want is for your mom to get sober and then your mom comes up sober and for some reason you're angrier than ever at her. It makes sense. It's just not, it's not what you would hope because they're not helpful. <laughs> so then she does a movie called Blue Lagoon, which is another destination on location shoot. She goes to live on an island for months, her and her mom. And of course, her mom relapses almost immediately. At first, she's like, oh, we'll be on this deserted island with just the crew. So how will my mom even get alcohol? And then she's like, oh, we're on a deserted island with a film crew. Of course, there's a fuck ton of alcohol. Yeah, so she's on it. She gives her mom a lot of credit for making sure she has a body double for nudity. She has to tell every story about a time her mom did something nice, like the time her mom gave her per diem to the nuns on the island. Okay, I don't care. And she talks more about her mom relapsing and about how her mom would be mean to her when she drank, which is contrary to what we heard earlier. Her mom was very cruel to her, but she says to her mom, it didn't matter because in her mom's heart, she knew she loved her. So it's okay that she was saying these mean things because she's like, well, that's not what I mean. And it's like, but it is what you're saying to your child. She had no idea how deeply her mean comments, whether representing her true feelings or not, cut into my heart. So if you don't know, Blue Lagoon was kind of her breakout role. It's about two cousins deserted on an island who end up banging. <laughs> oh, God. Sexy stuff. <laughs> and so it was just her and this teenage boy carrying the entire movie. And she says, I find it interesting that once again, I was able to uphold a certain sense of innocence in what had been considered a provocative environment. My mom was with me on the island, but I was older than I was and pretty baby and I was rather self-assured. People really loved my mother on this movie. She was not viewed as a threat as she had been on Pretty Baby. I love that like the mother of an 11-year-old is seen as the threat. <laughs> Thank God there was anything there threatening. By the end of August, I'd hit a limit with island life. As much as I had submerged myself in the sandy oasis, I was ready to go home. Mom was equally ready to leave. 
She never went in the sun, and I don't remember her even going in the water. We were both ready for some of the tastes and comforts of home. We had become an incredibly tight-knit team who experienced and suffered a great deal with one another. I mean, she has this way of saying these sentences that weave in and out of being like, I was so happy and it was the worst thing I'd ever experienced. We'd become so close because we had trauma bonded. (laughs) She talks about how much she hates the press junkets. They're so boring. She feels very grateful that her mom was able to negotiate flying out a single friend for her. Meanwhile, you know, most people are flying with an agent, a publicist, a manager, an assistant. Or going to high school instead. (laughs) I'm sorry to be like, I actually hated the press and I hated the filming and I hated everything about it, but I knew that this is how we were going to make a living together is heartbreaking. She didn't like filmmaking. I think as an adult, she wanted to be an actress, but only because it was taken from her. The Blue Lagoon was a huge hit that year, but the reviews were mixed. And she says, thinking about it now, though, I'm a bit conflicted about the fact that I did not read reviews. Perhaps if I had read the reviews, I may have chosen to steer my career differently. Perhaps I would have made better choices or might have given it up all entirely. I will never know. It remains the most successful movie she has ever made and the film with which she is most identified. I'd never heard of it. They, together with Brooks Money, buy a house in New Jersey in like a big suburban house in New Jersey that immediately gets broken into and so then they have to sell it and buy a different house in New Jersey and she starts high school. So she goes to this normal school, Dwight Englewood. I actually know it because I'm a Jersey girl. And at first, nobody likes her. She has no friends. And she's like, it's not because they were being mean to me. It's that they were so standoffish. She's like, I think they were told to leave me alone and not give me special treatment. But she ended up being very lonely. But her mom actually helped her by like inviting and integrating her students into her famous life. So she would get a deal to have a skate park birthday party where she got to go for free and have a party for free. All she had to do was take photos. And she invited the whole class. And that really broke the ice. And she started to have friends. And she actually is lifelong friends with some of the people she met in high school. And she's like, no one ever gave my mom credit for that. The fact that she was really smart about always having them come to premieres with me and stuff so that it was a little bit more normal. And she's like, and I think my friends really appreciated it because they could see that all these things I was doing were really for them because I had to work the whole time. So I wasn't enjoying it. I was like, ah, yes, it is good. And then she talks about how her mom started Brooke Shields and Company, which was the hired help to help sift through her fan mail. Her mom had no concept of being a career as an actress. Her mom was like a prototype of the influencer, but she didn't know how to make it work. Yes. So she knew it was important to have people love Brooke and to keep Brooke's name out there and to keep people talking about her. But there was no sense of direction in what she was doing or why. It was just, did it pay? And she kept saying, work begets work. You need to make your audience love you. So her mom would make Brooke handwrite thank you letters to every single piece of fan mail that she received. And then it got to the point where they had to hire a staff to help sort through it. And anything that was deemed crazy or scary would be sent to security to keep a monitor on. But like, imagine there's multiple threats on your daughter's life coming in every day. You have an entire security team dedicated to protecting your daughter because so many people have sent insane letters, scary stuff. And you're like, all right, we'll just put them in a different pile. Put them in a different pile and let's see what other movies we can make. It was so strange, too, that on the one hand, mom fought for my integration with kids my own age, yet on the other hand, she craved for me to become singled out and put on a pedestal by the world. Even though I achieved fame at a younger age, I was guarded by my mother and allowed to face celebrity in a surprisingly nurturing environment. Even if my talent had not been protected, I somehow was. Mom's drinking was way more damaging to me than fame. And then she says, mom made me so conscious of my fans that I began dreading being anywhere. There seemed to be no boundaries. I understood mom's philosophy, but the sense of obligation and the fear of losing a fan's devotion were often too much for me to take. I could never say no to the point where she like couldn't go out in public because if anyone ever asked for a fan autograph, her mom made her do it. Yeah. And she said that if anything, her mom's only boundary was not while she's eating her meal. So if you wait till afterwards, then she'll sign an autograph for you. So Brooke dreaded eating meals because there would be someone just standing on the sidelines waiting for her to finish. And she felt like she had to finish quickly so that she could get this person's autograph out of the way. And meanwhile, she's like, my mom really protected me. And that didn't hurt me at all. 
Because of her hypervigilance towards my public, I felt as if the world owned me. It was the feeling that everybody wanted to take a piece. That's like a horrible thing to instill in your child. Yeah. And it's so funny because then on the one hand, she's like, she protected me so much. She didn't let me read reviews. She only let every single human being come up and physically touch me. So then she does some movie called Endless Love, which she thinks is one of her best performances. And I only bring this up because one of the men in it is Tom Cruise. He has a small part. And this is the part where she says six times in a row how much her mom protected Tom and how much Tom loved her mom. And she says it over. She's like, she was very protective of Tom. Years later, Tom would remember how protective she was of him. He felt bad for what she did for me because of the protection of my Like, I'm like, we get it. Your mom was a good person to other people. Anytime someone complimented her mom, she has to put it in this book to let you know that she had good qualities. But it's interesting because her mom had gone out of her way to help Tom Cruise as a young man. And so that's why she was like, it was so crazy when he singled me out to be so mean. But he apologized later. So I forgave him. Brooke Shields had bad postpartum depression and it was incredibly brave of her and helpful to other women for her to come out and speak honestly and openly about the help she got and the depths of it all. And for Tom Cruise to then speak against it was actually like fucked really up. fucked up. And the way that she just is like, Tom apologized, so it's okay. He added that he basically felt concerned and I was the scapegoat. And then she kind of moves on. I'm like, Brooke, you're allowed to be mad at Tom Cruise. What he did was fucked up, not just to you, but to other people. To women as a whole. So then she does this Calvin Klein's ad that once again becomes very controversial. She says, nothing comes between me and my Calvins. And it is implied that that means she's not wearing underwear in the ads. And everyone goes fucking crazy. And I guess there's also the double entendre of like, come, but I don't hear that one as much. I just assumed she is like, kind of has her hand in her pants. And there's this idea that she's not wearing anything. And she's 15. And again, she does this thing where she goes, we filmed many different spots for this campaign and they were all unique and fun and amazingly clever. They all had smart historical, sociological, political, and biological references. It was ridiculous and insane. Mom was attacked for allowing me to verbalize such smut and I was once again perceived as both a Lolita and an abused daughter. We laughed it off at first, but the controversy continued. Okay, you cannot have it both ways. She's like, first of all, they were geniuses. You don't understand. This was the most groundbreaking, incredible genius ad. They found a pun on genes. She's just going on and on about how they were geniuses for coming up with this ad. This ad is just a hot girl wearing jeans. I mean, this isn't groundbreaking advertising or anything, but she can't stop talking about how brilliant they are. And she goes, but I don't think they would have ever thought that there could be a double entendre on nothing comes between me and my Calvins. And I'm like, okay, well, which is it, Brooke? Are they so genius that they needed to do it for the art of advertising? Or were they too dumb to pick up on the thing that everyone in society picked up on immediately? And it's always like both ways. And she defends it completely because it was completely honest. And not only was it honest, but it was high art. And she was happy to be a part of it. She's constantly talking about the way her mom is defending her innocence and protecting her innocence by like making sure it's obvious that she's a virgin. But also she's doing all these overtly sexual movies and ads and things. And it's like, yeah, your mom was a genius. We've been doing that for decades. I'm not sure if my mom knew how conflicting the images of me she was protecting were. When I was young, I was looked at as a provocative young woman, yet I became the virginal America's sweetheart. I went from doing movies like Pretty Baby and Endless Love to working with George Burns and Bob Hope and having a doll made in my likeness. Then she talks about having this Barbie doll made of her where they actually had to send it back to the factory and make the boobs smaller because Brooke was so flat-chested and it needed to be more accurate to her and relatable to teens. And she was like, yeah, it's weird. On the one hand, we were selling teens this like young virginal image of me and then we were selling adults this sexy image of me. And I'm like, yeah, look at Jessica Simpson. People love to covet the sexy virgin. I mean, why did we spend years obsessing over whether or not Britney Spears was a virgin only to like collectively lose our shit when she said she wasn't? I mean, the Jonas Brothers wore purity rings. I mean, it's just the oldest trick in the book. And and she's like, she had no idea the conflicting images. Yeah, she's like, it's weird the way that she sold me to everybody she could. <laughs> Whatever anyone wanted of me, she would give that version of me to them. Yeah, I mean, this is what made the book so sad. 
So her mom's drinking escalates. She says, when I was in high school, her drinking got much worse. I adored my mother and she adored me. And this young daughter was mature enough to save her own mom from the jaws of alcohol and everything had turned out well. So the story in the press was that her mom had gone to rehab because Brooke said, I need you to get sober for me. And everyone kind of like ate up the story of her newfound sobriety and Brooke being the caring, loving daughter. I felt terrible upholding what was now a lie. This dilemma would only get worse. So she's always giving these interviews about how her mom is sober and it's so great. And of course, it's not true. She is wildly famous at this point. It is the 80s. She is the face of the 80s. She's determined like the look that everybody should want to have. She's in movies. She's in campaigns. She's going to high school full time. She's partying all the time. Her mom would bring her to like Studio 54 till midnight every night from New Jersey. This period in the 80s had a fast and furious pace. Although I wasn't personally experiencing a carefree life filled with promiscuous sex and rampant drug use, I was engaged in my own personal high energy race. I was burning the candle from both ends. But instead of it being a negative thing, I was met with success. I was working extremely hard at school with four or five hours of homework per night. And I was either filming or modeling in the other hours. I did not need a great deal of sleep and I drove myself harder than anybody else did. I believe it was during these years that I began to be a perfectionist. I saw how much I could get accomplished and how I could have two equally full lives. I felt motivated by it all. It worked for me. She drank and was social. She could easily drink while out and then go home and finish half a bottle of vodka while getting ready for bed. I ran out of ways of asking her to quit. Tears didn't work. Rage didn't work. Please when sober didn't work. And the letters didn't work. Other people tried. I prayed. So then her high school graduation comes around. Brooke gets drunk herself and she gets really fucked up and has to have her mom come pick her up. And she's like throwing up and a teenager who gets drunk for the first time. She's a mess. And she says, are you mad at me, mom? And her mom says, no, I'm just disappointed. And so she is now disappointed in herself, not for getting drunk, but for not being a good drinker like her mom is. So she ends up going to Princeton. Everyone told her she wouldn't get in. Her own college advisor was like, you don't have the SATs. But she applied. And again, it got leaked to the press. It was this whole thing because she was a celebrity attendee. And she's like, I can't believe I got in. And it's like, well, you're a celebrity. She said she wanted to go to Princeton so that she could stay near her mom subconsciously. And she gets in and she was miserable. The whole time she was going home every weekend, Friday through Monday, and her mom had to come every Wednesday to take her to dinner. She eventually gets involved in the plays at school. She figures out how to get through and she gets a boyfriend, but she hates college. I think she just never really liked it. It gets better. It's never like the highlight of her life, but she does fit in and she gets really good grades. Interestingly enough, she says the students all respected her privacy and would tell security whenever they noticed a paparazzi. But the real turn for her is she got an A on a test where only like three people got A's in some huge 300 person lecture. And everybody started being like, oh, wait, you're smart. We want to study with you. And she had some boyfriend who was the captain of the football team. And they were really like a beautiful couple. And she etched out a life for herself, but she's forever tied to her mom. Well, her boyfriend, the captain of the football team, was Dean Kane. Who is that? Superman. For years, people attacked my mother for holding me down and for not allowing me my freedom. The press painted me as frustrated and bound. But the truth was, I didn't want freedom. Being bound was just fine. It was all I'd ever known, and I felt safe. I was not trying to escape. She writes another book. Her second publication comes out when she's in college. She wants to write like an in-depth tale of stardom to trying to fit in at university and they hire a ghostwriter who's like, these are the leggings that Brooke wears at university. When I feel my best is when I have a high ponytail. And then the only chapter that anybody actually cares about is where they say officially she's still a virgin and she is. She's still a virgin at this point. She's a virgin all through college. And that's all anybody cares about. Looking back, I think it was actually sad that there was so much access to my life for the press and consequently the public. I mean, one of my orthodontist appointments was filmed. I guess it was all in attempts to paint me as a regular kid. That's not what it was. It was your mom selling you at any chance she could get. Before she dated Dean Kane, she also dated George Michael briefly. 
her mom was obsessed with having her be associated with other celebrities. And she's like, my mom wanted me to date someone like George Michael or John Travolta or Michael Jackson. Those are all gay people, right? Yes. <laughs> she's like, the only men that she liked are men like George Michael, Michael Jackson, John Travolta. Because I believe she was impressed by their genuinely sweet natures as well as their level of fame. Maybe they said they didn't want to have sex with you. <laughs> Don't judge my daughter, but get a photo with her. So she dates Dean Cain. When she's 22, she loses her virginity to Dean. He was amazing to her, she said. She was like, if I could go back, I would have been different. I would have fixed it. She's like, I shouldn't have made him wait so long. He was so respectful. He was so kind. His family was amazing. It was the happiest she ever was. But she says the minute she had sex with him, everything turned because she felt like this huge betrayal to her mom that by having sex with her partner, having a life that her mom was not a part of, and she felt so guilty because her mom was a Catholic and she really used her needing to stay a virgin to control her because she did not want her to have these relationships outside of herself, outside of her own mother. I didn't know where I began and where my mother ended, and that meant I didn't know how to fit Dean in. I think that that is like a very honest and sad realization. I feel sad for these two young lovers. I feel sad for myself and for him and for us. I wish I'd had the strength to revel in our relationship more, even from the very start. I gave what I could, but I remained tethered. The leap was too much for me to handle. Going to college was, in a way, an ending to the first major era of my career, and it was a closure to the first and longest chapter of my mom's and my relationship. So she graduates college and she heads back to the industry. She assumed she would pick up right where she left off, but it was not going good. At this point in my career, I did not have the luxury of not working and not earning. We had so much overhead. We had an office staff of five women, a handyman, a cleaning lady, and a part-time driver. We had four homes with mortgages and bills seemingly everywhere. So she goes to ICM and chats with a respectable agent. And he says, I want to turn you into a real actress. Like, we need to rebuild your career from the ground up. But in order to do this, you have to fire your mom. And she says, no, I cannot do that. Looking back at this now, I get a pang of regret. I start to think about the what ifs and feel anger and sadness. For so many years, I did not feel valid as an actress. Having been deprived of the opportunity to become a respected actress pains me. I think obviously reestablishing her career with a team that knows what they're doing would have been smart. But I always struggle with the people like the Jennifer Grays, the Rob Lowe's, the like, I was a very talented actor. No one ever gave me the chance, you know? Also, she did pretty well for herself. She did pretty well for herself. I do think her mom ruined her career, but at some point it's like it couldn't have been a different way. Because it wasn't a different way. Yeah. I had no power at the box office. I was not the skinny exotic woman child I had once been. I had been marketed as a commodity that was obtainable to do whatever song and dance asked of me. She didn't have any direction for her career and she had nowhere to go. She had gained 20 pounds in college, which I assume is just like how her body was supposed to be. I'm guessing she probably got up to 120 pounds in college. Yeah, I think when you're a teenager versus when you're in your 20s, your body just is a different shape. And her mom is still her manager, just getting her like whatever money and whatever things she can. So she does this weight loss commercial in Japan. And on the flight out there, her mom meets these businessmen on the plane and brings them over at like 3 a.m. the hotel and makes Brooke meet and entertain them. It turns out they work for Nescafe. So then she's doing this ad for Japanese instant coffee. And she goes to Paris with her mother and has like a fucking breakdown and is like, how dare you let my career get so bad? I am Brooke Shields. I was the face of the 80s. How am I now doing instant pour over coffee for Japan? How is this the best it could be for me? And her mom gets really fucking drunk and almost misses her flight. And Brooke just leaves without her. Yeah, she's regrets even leaving her mom with her passport. She's like, I should have stranded her internationally. I put a call into Betty Ford herself. I explained the situation and she promised that if I could get my mother to go to the Betty Ford Center, she would have a bed ready for me. I would just have to get mom to commit to going back to treatment. So she does another intervention. Her mom absolutely refuses to go. She's like, I don't have a problem. And she goes, but mom, I really love you. Yeah, and Peter really loved Jesus. Where to get him? She had this cocky expression on her face when she said it. That was what she would always say, that she was just like Peter, that she would deny her one day, just like Jesus. 
It was crazy when she chose to pull out the religion card and how hypocritical she remained. She says, to this day, the ACOA, the adult child of alcoholic kid in me, thinks that if only Betty Ford's had been available the first time, maybe it would all somehow be different. I don't think it would be, but I understand like needing to hold on to that hope. So then she starts dating Liam Neeson kind of randomly. They have this whirlwind romance where within three months they're engaged and then he has to fly to LA to check in on like a flood in his house and she says, call me when you get there and he says, it'll be late and she says, well, I'll stay up until you get home. I want to make sure you're safe and he just never calls her. He just like fully (laughs) ghosts her ass. (laughs) Her mom liked Liam because she's like, yeah, he was just like an older alcoholic. My mom really got it. (laughs) Yeah. So then she, of course, needs her mom again because she's just been dumped hard. That sucks. I feel like an old-fashioned ghosting is tough stuff. You know we're pro-ghosting first, maybe second date. If the conversation can fizzle, it's okay to let the conversation fizzle. I think that if you're like in the middle of a conversation, if I say, hey, I'll see you tonight at 6, and then you ghost, if there's anything set in the future, you have to cancel those plans. Yes. Even if they're just like, hey, are you around this weekend? Yeah, like I'll let you know this weekend what I'm up to. That's a plan. It's a plan to let someone know what you're up to. After she gets ghosted, she crawls back to her mom. She cries. Her mom takes care of her. And then she books another on location shoot because that really helps her clear her mind. And she's very happy when she's just out there on set acting. But... On this set where she's in Africa shooting this project, her friend is like, you would love my friend Andre Agassi. And she's like, I am pretty heartbroken right now. I can't really handle talking to someone else. And she's like, well, just fax each other. She's never single for a minute, huh? I guess not. So they start faxing and they really get each other. Andre is in a very similar boat where he had a super controlling, abusive father. He's also really famous. So that's not a weird dynamic in the relationship. And he is down to devote himself to her. So her mom and Andre butt heads, and I think it's just because this relationship had an intensity to it and her mom felt displaced. They talk constantly when she goes out to Las Vegas where he lives. They like really fall for each other. It was not clouded by passion or fear, but fueled by respect and fresh perspective. It felt like a safe respite from the life that had been beating me down. I felt like I'd finally found a relationship in which I felt totally understood. We were somehow grounded and individually intent on self-improvement. Andre and I wanted to thrive, not just survive. She also gets foot surgery very early in their relationship and he gets wrist surgery very early in their relationship. And one thing that we have learned through years of research is that celebrity relationships thrive on injury because everyone is so running around all the time. You're always on tour, you're on location, you're traveling for tournaments and whatever kind of celebrity you are, there's an enormous amount of travel involved. And so if you are down and out having to recover, that's the only time that you can like quietly not work and get to know each other. And also he comes to help her. So her own mom was supposed to be her ride to and from the hospital. And as always, her mom gets very drunk. And Andre shows up and goes, let me take you. And then he insists on taking care of her. And she says he's the only man that was ever to stand up to her mom respectfully, that everyone else she'd ever dated either wanted to ally with Brooke against the mother or was a coward to the mother. She said, oh, you can't sleep in Brooke's room. And he goes, I want to make sure she's okay all night. He put couch cushions on the floor and just slept next to Brooke's bed all day. Things like that where he just said, no, I'll listen to your rules, but I'm going to look after Brooke. Her mom was very threatened, but he wasn't doing anything wrong. And she really respected that he understood the dynamic and was very comfortable with what they had. And Brooke was just in awe of it. So she ate up everything he said. I didn't question a thing he suggested. I wanted to keep breathing the fresh air of contentment. I also highlighted that. I find it so interesting because all of her child is colored by never questioning her mother. 
And it's just so funny the way the people can change, the object of your addiction can change, but the pattern and the behavior remains the same. If you have power over Brooke, you have all the power over Brooke. Yes. And I guess part of me viewed this as not even a bad thing because I will say like the years of detanglement that it takes in order to like get someone to change these patterns by her changing the object of her addiction. It like switched it up just enough that she could run free. Yeah. I agree with you. But then the other problem is this entire time he was addicted to crystal meth and she <laughs> did not know. He was on crystal meth going, no, I'm not. And she was like, well, he said. But she never even asked. She, she never, never even. I don't think she even. But like that's how. How out of touch she is with everything going around her. Because he stands up to her mom, she is able to sort of realize that a detangling needs to take place. It was supposed to be a sensitive but firm declaration of my independence, easier said than done. So she, working with his business manager, decides that they need to fire her mom as her representation. And her mom is just like obsessed with the fact that this business manager, Perry, is controlling her. And really, it's like, yes. In a way, he is, but in a way that needs to be done. Like, she's not going to do this independently. She needs to do this under someone else's control. So with the help of Andre's team and his representation and everyone that he has under his umbrella, she is able to just fire her mom, liquidate the offices, and find new representation. Yes, but also no. So she goes and she tells her mom, and she's doing what she thinks is the mature thing to do by telling her mom first. But then she does it like both ways. So on the one hand, she goes and tells her mom and she says she had to fight the urge inside of herself to get approval from her mom. Like she wanted to go and say, mom, I don't think you're the best representation for me anymore. But in a way where her mom goes, you know, you're right. You need someone better. And of course, her mom's never going to do that. But at the same time, Perry is telling her you have to go cold turkey. Something like this has to be cut off clean. I see both sides. I do think she was so enmeshed with her mom that it would have been very easy for her mom to guilt trip her out of doing it. But at the same time, she's like, the way I did it was so cold. I do love my mom. She says my situation was very different than Andre's where Andre's dad had total power over him, but he didn't love his dad the way I like loved my mom. Yeah. And she says to this day, her mom has not forgiven her for the way that she went and just like cleared out the offices over a weekend when her mom wasn't looking. Yeah, literally. She went and shut down the whole office. And when her mom been back on Monday, not a thing was there. And she's like, I regret that. She says the conversation went relatively smoothly and she knew that was a red flag. And her mom fought her on things for like four or five years legally. Yeah. And Brooke had said, let's just split everything down the middle 50-50. Which is insane. And that was not good enough for her mom. Her mom fought her on every step of the way. So then she gets a show called Suddenly Susan. She also guest stars in a Super Bowl episode of Friends, which is a huge deal. And of course, she has a giant fight with Andre on set because she has to be sexual with Joey Tribbiani. He says, you made me look like a fool and then broke all of his trophies he had ever earned. Which is insane. Suddenly, Susan was the best thing that had happened in my career since being cast by Lewis in Pretty Baby. I mean, I mean, that is really heartbreaking to say that that was a career highlight. In many ways, both good and bad, I had basically allowed myself to be overtaken by Andre and his enterprise. It was such a relief to breathe for a change. So she's doing Suddenly, Susan. Things are going great. She loves doing the sitcom. Comedy was in my veins and it unified us all. Her dad likes the show. And she also meets a man named David who becomes her absolute best friend. He's her co-star on the show and they spend every second of every day together. They love each other. Here's something suspicious though. So David becomes her absolute best friend. He's on the show. He struggled with addiction himself and is bipolar, but he helps her understand her mom. She understands him. She mentions briefly that her best friend from high school, Lisa, who to this day is one of her best friends still, they were on the outs because Andre didn't like the way that Lisa was close with Brooke's mom. And is like, how could you be friends with anybody who's even nice to your mom after the way your mom treated you? And Brooke was like, yeah, he had a way of just cutting people off cold turkey. So Lisa was just out. So I only had two friends and it was David and Andre. 
Her friends are David and Andre. She and Andre get married. It hit me all of a sudden. I knew I'd made a mistake. I did not want to be married. I wanted to have a wedding because I wanted everyone I loved to be together. I loved Andre, but I wasn't sure I wanted to live the life we had been living. I wanted to be a bride, but I should not have been married yet. I feared that if I had not said yes to his proposal, he would have cut me off emotionally and it would have been over. They have sort of like a precarious marriage where they are technically married, but I don't think they ever spend any married time together. So for two years, they never see each other and things come to a halt. He's based in Vegas. She's based in Los Angeles. They're both working very busy schedules. Life on the show continued. And for the next two years, Andre and I saw very little of one another. I was working so hard on the show and he was working really hard at playing various tournaments. He alienated me when he lost and was on to the next tournament after he won. She said overall, the marriage was existing, but it felt as if somehow that is not what it was supposed to be. It was easy to avoid dealing with it. I maintain that it was not due to the lack of love as much as the lack of life. So she also gets a dog at this point. And at one point, the dog gets lost on the Warner Brothers lot. And this will become important later. A man comes over to her and is like, hey, is this your dog? And she says, it's my dog, not my husband's dog. But I have a husband. And this is my dog that my husband also exists in our lives. And he's like, OK, I don't really care that you have a husband. I'm just trying to return this dog. But that was her projecting because Andre was big about being like, this is your dog, not mine. Yes. The marriage ends when he had won like a yacht trip in a charity bidding and he comes to LA to pick her up to take her to this yacht trip for a vacation. And she's like, I don't know that we should go on it. Things haven't been going very good. And I was like, damn, if you hate someone so much that you can't be on a yacht, that sucks, dude. Like take the yacht trip. So he comes home and packs up his things. I don't know what things he could have had there. They never spent any time together. But he drives off and she was like, where are you going? And he's like, I'm leaving because you don't want me here. And she's like, I would be lying if I said I wanted him to turn around. But also, I feel like we had to try. And it's like, no, you don't. So he drives off into the storm. The storm is so bad that he has to pull over. He pulls over to a hotel and he's like, listen, I got to tell you something. I've been on crystal meth the entire time. He's like, the whole beginning of our relationship, I was addicted to crystal meth. But I've been clean since the wedding. And then she's like, I read his book. And I don't know that that actually is true. Also, I know we mentioned the crystal meth earlier. We get less than two pages about it at all. It is a little cliff note on her story being like, you know, I love addicts. Why couldn't you tell me you were an addict? So they break up. It takes eight days for them to get the divorce done. I guess lickety split. Prenups were good. And then it seems like their friend, she says she was with him the day he went on his first date with Steffi Gaff and helped him get dressed for it. And I was like, how did you guys go from not seeing each other once as a married couple to like doing the pre-date pre-game? Best palios when you're dating other people. So she's going through this divorce. Things are horrible. Her friend David calls up and is like, hey, why don't you come out to dinner with me and my fiance? And she's like, I'm not feeling up to it. Why don't you just come over for dessert? And he's like, my fiance has an early call time tomorrow. We can't do it. And then she says the next morning she got a call and he had killed himself. Yeah. Which is like horrific. So now she's going through this divorce. Her best friend is dead. And I think she just starts to spiral. And then she finds out her father has cancer. Yeah. It is a horrible, horrible time. The show is over. She doesn't even want to do it without him. Meanwhile, though, it turns out she'd been falling in love with that guy who found her dog. So within a year of breaking up with Andre, she gets a quote unquote promise ring from Chris. And she's like, I'm not ready to get engaged right now. And he's like, I know this is a promise ring. And then the next year they get engaged. Yeah. So Chris is the guy that found the dog. And when she had met him on the set, she was like, this guy seems handsome and cool and nice. So I'm going to set him up with my friend. And so then she sets him up with a friend. And while he's dating the friend, she is fresh off the divorce, fresh off of her best friend dying. Her dad has cancer. And she's like, that guy, though, I liked him. So they start going on dates and she like will not call him her boyfriend for a long time. Finally, she has to get another surgery and she has no one to come pick her up. And Chris comes in to help her and she's like, okay, you're my boyfriend. 
So they get married. I can't even get it. This is like a story where it's like one after another. She gives the whole rundown of their wedding weekend. There was a lot of debacles. Believe it or not, her alcoholic mom and his mom didn't get along well. Her mom called the other mom a cunt for like no reason. I think the other mom was like, is there anything I can help you with? And her mom goes, no, you fucking cunt. I also want to give quick background to who Chris is. He is one of the co-founders of Funny or Die. He's a comedy writer and he's written a bunch of Will Ferrell movies. So he's rich. At the wedding, her mom is a drunk mess. I just wanted it to be over so she would not embarrass herself. I wasn't angry, but I was humiliated for her. I was so pained to see mom doing this in front of my father and Dee Dee. So Brooke also really projects her mom feeling displaced in her dad and Dee Dee's relationship. So they have this fancy wedding. The money thing is so weird. She's like, we didn't have a wedding planner because we were trying to save money. And in retrospect, that was a regret because people kept pulling me in all directions the day of my wedding. And I was like, why didn't you spend money? Why didn't you have a fucking wedding planner? That's like the least of it. Her mom makes a great impression at the welcome lunch for the wedding. And then obviously is a drunk mess at the dinner and at the wedding. She's so disappointed. She says, why hadn't mom allowed her last impression from lunch to be her new image? Thank God mom didn't mention my father's wife who remained reticent and graceful as usual. Like, she creates these things of like, mom had one good lunch. Why didn't she let that redefine her? <laughs> well, can I say, and it doesn't sound like her dad's an angel either. He shows up to her wedding and this is what he does. I was getting ready and putting on my big princess wedding dress. I was getting the veil adjusted and my father awkwardly came up to the room and said he had to ask me a quick question. He pulled out a letter from a buddy of his who freelanced for People magazine. This guy was begging my father just to come to the barbecue the following day so we could cover it for the magazine. I looked at my father and pointed to myself and said, dad, Wedding dress, bride. Can we not discuss that right now? I'm just saying he's a nice guy and he's a buddy of mine from, I'm sure he is, dad, but I'm not going to discuss this with you right now, seconds before I'm going down the aisle. Okay. Don't worry, dad. I get it. We'll just finger something out, but please, let's just focus on this first. Jesus Christ. There's not one person in her life who doesn't want something from her. No. It's and I think true. that that's why she fell into Andre's hands because it was like finally somebody who didn't need anything from her. It's awful. So actually, we left this out that at her first wedding to Andre, her mom went missing for four days while she was on her honeymoon. She just like wandered away and was lost in Napa. And Brooke was like, I wasn't sure if she was just so fucked up she got lost or if she did it to prove a point that like nobody even cares I'm gone. But then at this wedding, they were all staying in this giant billionaire's house on Palm Beach who had given it to her for the wedding. And her mom was staying at the house. And the hostess called the cops on her, Terry because Terry was acting so crazy. So Brooke previously had most of her cervix removed because she had a cancer scare so when they decided to try and have a family pretty quickly, they had to do IVF. Their first IVF attempt takes, but she miscarries after a few months. And this was very difficult and very traumatic for her. And she calls her mom for comfort and tries to extract this rumor that she'd heard once or twice about her mom losing a son. And her mom like will not give it to her. Her mom goes, oh, that's sad. So sorry. And she is like really devastated that her mom can't be here for her in this moment. I let her off the hook and never brought it up to her again. I would never know anymore while my mother was alive and physically able to communicate. So they go through six more IVF attempts. And then finally on the seventh transfer, a baby takes and she's so happy, but her father is dying and she cannot travel. So she can't travel because something could happen to the baby. She doesn't want to go down to Palm Beach. One day she gets a phone call from her sister and she says, say what you want to our dad and say it now. I love you, dad. And I've always been proud you were my father. Please don't be scared. According to Christiana, dad moved his toes. That was the last time I would ever talk to him. So she calls her mom crying. Through her lonely tears, she asked me if he had said anything about her to me. What? Did he mention me? No, mom, he did not mention you. How could you ask me that at this moment? No, he did not talk about you. I knew that I was being cruel, but I said it anyway. I saw the entire plane ride to New York City. I went to term. She has these moments of anger that she carries with her. That moment where her mom asks 
if her father mentioned her, her mom not being able to comfort her through her miscarriage. Like these are the things she's able to hang on to as her mother's wrongdoings. I was incredibly sad that my dad would never meet my children, but I tried to forget the reality of the loss. No one has a good story about their husband when they have a baby. It's insane. Mac, I know you're listening to this. Do something. If Claire has a baby, I swear to fucking God, just act normal. <laughs> her water breaks and she asks her husband to go grab the what you expect when you're expecting book. And she's like, what should we do when my water breaks? And he goes, the book says go back to sleep. So she goes back to sleep and then she gets a call, I think, from her sister. And her sister was like, what do you mean your water broke? You have to go to the hospital immediately when your water breaks because you could get an infection. And she's like, Chris, what did the book say? I thought you said it said go back to sleep. She realizes he didn't open the book. He goes, what book? I swear to fucking God. So they go and it's a horrible birth. She is trying to push. They can't get the contractions to go. It turns out the baby is breech and has their cord wrapped around them three times. They have to put her into an emergency C-section. She's like hemorrhaging. She loses so much blood that they're not sure that she's going to be able to keep her uterus. They think she might have a hysterectomy or that she could die. So they pull the baby out of her and then she goes into severe watch. And it's like 24 hours of surveillance before they can determine whether or not she'll need a hysterectomy or if she'll survive. So her first hours of being a mom are just constant fear. She's miserable. She's scared. She's cold. She's in pain. When the baby is pulled, she looks at Chris and says, go with the baby, go with the baby. So she's just left completely alone in this OR. And she's conscious and she's truly scared she's about to die. So uh, her baby has underdeveloped hips. So they had to put Rowan in a brace. Rowan was in a brace, but I felt like I was in a straight jacket. I was able to keep my uterus and my life and I was soon released. At home, it seemed that nobody could help me. I continued to struggle with breastfeeding. I couldn't stop crying and I had horrible visions of Rowan getting hurt. I would get dizzy at the powder smell of diapers. I'd huddle in the shower with hot water pounding down on me and not move for extended periods of time. Food had no taste or appeal. This was obviously the beginning of severe postpartum depression. No one knew what it was yet, but it would last much longer and cause damage to all of us in different ways. Chris came back from a store, ironically called Bye Bye Baby, empty-handed. He sat down at the edge of the bed and began to cry. He said he had seen happy mothers holding their newborns and pregnant mothers smiling and shopping. What's wrong with you? You don't sing or kiss her. I felt my world end. She runs into the living room where her mom is sitting and she goes, I made Chris cry. And her mom goes, what? I made Chris cry? And Brooke freaks out. She's like, not everything's about you. Some things are about me. She's like, this is just like when my dad died and all you could think about was yourself. Get out of the house. And she kicks her mom's out and she has a breakdown. And I have to say, like, obviously something was wrong here and she needed help. I don't know that what's wrong with you. Like, you're not as good as the other mothers is the way to say it. No. Why can't you say, I'm worried about you. I feel like you're struggling. Not, hey, I see other mothers that are happy. How come you're so fucked up? She does end up seeking and finding help. She had very severe postpartum depression, which Tom Cruise was mean about. And she actually wrote a book about called Down Came the Rain. They have houses in L.A. and New York and the Jersey house, and they're going between the three. She gets a night nurse who lives with them for a year. And she just talks about how disappointed she is in her mom constantly because being with her baby and being with her mother, it's, it's like this break from her mother where I feel like she's angry at what she didn't get from her mother that she's giving this baby. She says when the baby was born, my heart ached for everybody I loved and was now breaking for myself. I fell asleep that night looking at this little stranger under her orange light and I envied her. This baby was allowed to be helpless. I had never been permitted to be so. And she talks about her whole life being like, I was more aware of my mother's well-being than my own, even from the time I was six. My daughter became my only priority. I realized completely that I could not count on my mother to help my daughter or me, and most likely even herself. She has this night where her baby is sick and she's at her mother's house and her mother offers no help. They don't have a car for some reason. Chris is in L.A. And she says something in her side of her chain. She had to stay up all night watching her baby. And at that moment, she had this like break from her mother and was never the same, realizing 
she had this idea that look at me I survived my life is good clearly my mom was capable of taking care of me and at this point watching her mom's ineptitude with the baby she wasn't only anger but she began to question everything she felt she knew about whether or not her mom had raised her or if it's just like a stroke of good luck that she survived the whole thing all throughout my life I had held hope that my mother would one day ultimately show up for me and give me the freedom to not worry about her or put her needs ahead of mine in these moments of fear for my daughter's health I realized that it was up to me to reclaim that freedom on my own Two years later, living in New York again, I was planning to appear in the musical Chicago for the second time as Roxy Hart. She was going to do IVF and have another baby. And she gets the news, no need. You're already pregnant. So she does a run of the show pregnant and ends right as she's showing too much to keep doing it. However, at this point, her mom is coming over and it's clear that she's declining. She's not speaking normally. She's struggling with very basic tasks. She asks her mom to set the table. She's unable to do so. I would like to be able to write that I calmly helped her and encouraged her like I would a child. I did not. I got disgusted and impatient, and he used the moment to chastise and shame her. I was striking back and felt ugly and ashamed, but I could not stop this lashing out. Something was not right in her head. Was it her brain pickled by booze, or was it something else? So she does find out that her mom has Alzheimer's. I was beginning to get worried and sad because alcohol was seriously beginning to be the least of my worries. The last section of the book is about putting her mom in a nursing home and watching her slowly die, and the struggle and like the anger of watching her mom deteriorate and realizing that there's no hump. She's never going to get past the alcoholism. There's never going to be this moment of clarity where she apologizes and she's the mother she had always hoped she could be. She just watches her slowly start to regress. I'm reminded of the fact that every Disney movie from Bambi to Frozen, the mothers are all dead or die within the first few minutes. Is this what it takes to start your own story? One's narrative morphs with the current perspective of the truth. But must one's mother die for a person to fully individuate? Maybe when I blurted out, if you die, I'll die all those years ago, I was onto something. Maybe a part of me would have to die to continue. I used to honestly feel that if my mom died, I would actually stop living. Now I had my own children to live for and I had my own life to fully live. It started getting very sad to me when I realized I was actually slowly losing my mother and there was little to be done about it. I felt like I had lost her my entire life. I had fought for her and had fought against her for so many years and was not sure what I had to show for it. She was just fading just as I was beginning to come into focus. So she has her mom move into a retirement home and her mom is actually kidnapped out of the retire home by a National Enquirer reporter who brings her to a bank to withdraw money which they're able to catch in time, but she ends up having to have her mom declared incompetent and she sues the National Enquirer and wins because that is unhinged. She finally gets her diagnosed with dementia and she just slowly is fading. She also ends up going through her mom's warehouse of hoarded goods and sorting through these is equally therapeutic and re-traumatizing. Her mom saved everything and in this chaotic way where she would have a suitcase full of Beanie Babies and then at the bottom would be a 24-carat gold diamond-encrusted Harry Winston watch. And so it really was a hanger, like an airplane hanger that she had put everything, every article, everything they ever bought. She would hide stuff. She was obsessed with people stealing from them. So she was always trying to like trick them by putting a bunch of fake Chanel bags with a real one. So everything had to be sifted through one by one. Nothing could be overlooked. And at this point, she's raising her own girls. And she talks very honestly about the struggle of how badly she wanted her daughters to be independent but also how much it hurt her that her daughters were so independent and like not understanding why do my children talk back and not believe in me the way I so blindly believed in my mother and kind of understanding her mom's inkling to be like, no, 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 yeah, be under my thumb. I want to have control over you. I have to ask my girls who they are. They are not me. I am not them. It is easy to want to mold them. She has these pangs of jealousy almost that her daughters don't blindly look up to her and she's equally angry and proud that they're independent, that they exist on their own, that they ask questions when they have questions, that they don't just follow everything their mom says or does. But she's also like, why not though? Like, why am I not good enough that they just want to follow and emulate everything I do? 
Her mom finally dies during Hurricane Sandy, October 31st, 2012. A bunch of nurses come in to have a toast to her and she has to write every nice thing that the nurses say because it's like so important to her to know that somebody liked her, I think. So many people said awful things about her mom. And I think every time someone was like, well, she told me she had a nice smile. She was like, good, write that down. I mean, truly. Yeah. Anybody who ever said, oh, once your mom complimented my shirt, it was so sweet of her. She's like, it's in the book. As her mom is dying, she finds out about her brother that only lived for 24 hours. And it turns out this medal that her mom wore around her neck always, that Brooke now wore around her neck, was given to her by the priest that did the funeral. She's like, the sign was in front of me all along. She like really reattributes a lot of her mom's problems to this trauma. So her mother dies and she doesn't know what to do. Her husband is in L.A. I get that he has to work, but it seems like he's never around when it's important. I don't know. I know. I can't believe they're still together. I got to the corner and stopped. Not sure what to do next. I needed to get back to some place. I remember feeling like this on 9-11. I ran out of my apartment on 50th Street and just started speed walking up First Avenue. That day, like today, I had no idea where I was headed. Everything comes back to 9-11. She says she was in a deli and she didn't want to be alone. And so she's talking on the phone and she felt herself talking out loud about her mom's death and how bad she didn't want to be alone and how scared she was on purpose, hoping the people in the deli would take sympathy on her and come and help her. I mean, I really understand this impulse. Like when you're having a horrible day and a horrible time and you're like, okay, I don't want to burden my loved ones, but I can't walk down the street existing like everyone else is existing. I need the people around me, whether or not I know them, to like be aware that my day is going really badly. I started to beat myself up for talking loudly on the phone and for looking to strangers for recognition of my pain. It was an affliction of mine of which I thought I had been cured and felt angry to have seen it rear its ugly head once again. Her friend comes and picks her up. They go and have a toast to her mom. She tells a story about getting her daughter's ears pierced. Her daughter talks back and says, you don't know more the doctor than the doctor. And she recalls that her whole life, her mom taught her how to swim, even though her mom did not know how to swim. And again, it brings up these feelings of like relating to her mom and being afraid of her mom and how so much of her raising her children is always in response to how her mom raised her. I guess I harbored such romantic visions about who she could have been because I really believed they were options. She talks about how she always had wanted her mom to have a second act, maybe having like an antique store or a linen shop or styling or doing one of the things that she was so good at. And she always felt that alcohol stood in the way from her mom having a career of her own or really making something of herself individually. And she's like, that never was a thing that she like expressed desire to do or had any intention of doing. They were just things that she imagined her mom could someday be. So they buy a house in Southampton, which is, uh, may we all mourn the death with a fresh Southampton home. <laughs> and she decorates it for some reason without spending any money by using all the old furniture that her mom had left in this hangar. But the minute she does, she's like, I hate it. We have to sell everything. And she has a breakdown. And they sell everything so that she can buy new furniture because she's like, after buying the house, we were we didn't really have much cash left. And I'm like, I do not really believe that someone who just bought their fourth home <laughs> is that broke. <laughs> They cobbled the money together. Six months later, it was our first Christmas in this house. And to quote my girls, it promised to be the best one ever. She goes through pages and pages of describing how they decorated the house, which I understand is important to her because she had always been the only person to decorate for Christmas when it was just her and her mom, even as a little girl. So I think it meant a lot to her that the whole family was pitching in. And then she looks and she just starts crying. And she says, I looked at him with tears starting to well up in my eyes and said, I have no parents. He held me tight and said he understood. Do you? I thought. Does anybody really know what it feels like to lose a mom until it happens? No matter what the quality or situation of one's life, the end of a living mother is profound. She talks about how her daughters would like say specific things to make her feel better. And she understands that she needs to learn how to not make her feelings their responsibility to take care of. Later that night, I went over it in my head. How could it be that I had everything in place, but there remained a huge void? 
I found the wonderful husband and grounded relationship. My kids were healthy. We had a full and vibrant home with the tree and the decorations and the music, even the snow for Christ's sake. I had everything I'd always wanted, but now I had no mom. She used to be my barometer for joy. If she was happy, I was happy. I wanted to show her how well it had all turned out. Sure, life had kicked us in the ass for various reasons, but no one's exempt from that. And there had been and currently was a tremendous amount of good. The blessings were continued. I wanted to show off my beautiful table and how I had utilized the special possessions she herself had taught me about and collected. Denial can be very shrewd. The first year after mom died didn't seem so bad because mom had been failing for a while. There had been a few recent celebrations during which we were not together. The first year I just tricked myself into thinking mom was not with me because she was still at the assisted living facility. But this Christmas was a shock. It had been about a year and two months and I still had not had any dreams about mom. I suppose it was crafty denial, but I was beginning to realize that mourning had only just begun. I now needed to do what mom was never capable of doing, let go even just a little bit, because I wish she knew she didn't ever have to let me go. All she needed to do was stretch her arms out further and relax her fingers. And that's how it ends. It ends with an epilogue to her mother where she writes her a letter. And that's it. It's really heartbreaking. She talks about how the worst part of the death of her mom is the death of the hope. Yeah. She never got the closure. She never got what she wanted. I think that this book was written so close to those feelings. I wonder how how it's evolved. Yeah. I'm interested to see it evolved. I don't think this is the final form, but I also think that writing this book was probably very much instrumental to her healing. Yeah. And I think in that sense, it is like its own art. Life doesn't begin when things are processed. Right. And this really reflects a moment in time where you're doing your best to hold on to so many things at once. Yeah, there are a lot of things that she holds on to and some of them just directly clash against one another. And it's really interesting to watch it play out. And I think only because I know or from what I've seen of the teasers, Pretty Baby, the documentary that's coming out is a lot about what it did to her to be sexualized by America so young. And I think she probably couldn't even begin to look at that impact on her life. The way that she was told you're so valuable because of your face, that's fucked up. That's so And that's not even up. touched on briefly. I think she couldn't even begin to go there because her mom was so complicit in it. But before she could handle that, she had to grieve her mom because her mom allowed the world to treat her the way they did. Yeah. So I'm excited to see the documentary. We will be talking about it on the Patreon. We love you guys. Talk to you later. We're doing a fun one next week. We need a break. <laughs> Thank you, Izzel Booze. I would love to take a shot with you. Thank you, poop shoot 69, 69, 69, 69 at three. Okay, my gift to you was reading that username. Thank you to be quangy. I hope that you be as quangy as you want to be. Thank you to Anaphasia. My appreciation for you is not just a phase. Thank you to I'm Claire too. Oh, with a beautiful review like this, you could become my new number one favorite, Claire. Thank you to Kate's mom. Listen, tell Kate she's got the coolest mom in town. Thank you to Mev17283084. Mev, I'd love to sit down for a bev. Thank you to Mary M. Olson, my favorite of the Olson triplets. Thank you, Nat Attack. I would love to attack you with a hearty thank you. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you.